How much do front offices really matter? I'll ask Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 24th. It's show number 32 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, discussing well-run teams and not-so-well-run teams, manipulation of prospects' playing time, beam balls, replay, new pitcher usage models, and his picks for baseball's top individual awards. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, Looking at Daniel Murphy traded to the Cubs, Marcel Ozuna going to the DL, two closers activated, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at injuries in New York, affecting Didi Gregorius and Aroldis Chapman, and in Anaheim, affecting outfielder Justin Upton. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Tampa shortstop prospect Wander Franco. And in our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas outfielder Drew Robinson. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about managing ERA down the stretch. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about planning and hoping. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? 12 teams still have a 50% or better chance to make the playoffs. We gotta talk some baseball. According to Fangraphs, 12 teams have a 50% or better chance to reach the playoffs. In the American League, Boston and Cleveland are already 100% locks. The Yankees and Houston are above 99% and Oakland is at 82%. That only leaves Seattle down around 18%, so the American League lineup looks pretty much set. But in the National League, only the Cubs are pretty much locked at 97%, St. Louis and Milwaukee are at 55%, Arizona is at 63%, the Dodgers at 54%, and even Colorado, if you want to count them, is almost at 50%. It's going to be a great stretch run. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick, always good to talk to you, buddy. How are your teams doing? Uh, I have only one team, and it's terrible. I was in last place for most of the year, but I've been fighting like hell, and I'm actually out of last place. I'll be talking about this in Master Notes a little later, and I'm actually, I think I could maybe get into 10th or 9th, which doesn't sound like much, but from where I was, Joe, it's quite an accomplishment. And I like the fact that you're even talking about doing that. So many leagues, you know, it's hard to keep that going. I had a terrible year last year in the, the local league here in New York, and you know, I still found myself making transactions and trying to make moves and setting lineups, I think probably until like the first week of September. Um, and at that point, it was just kind of like, okay, you know, there's only so much you can do. But you know, in a lot of leagues, you see the bottom five teams just stop paying attention. So I, I like it as, a, as somebody who played the game to hear that you're trying so hard to get out of the cellar. I know there's a, a lot of guys who fall into that position because they have multiple teams and they decide, I've only got so much time to devote to this. I'll take my team that's in third, you know, try to get it into first rather than take my team that's in 11th and try to get it into eighth. 
But a few years ago at First Pitch Arizona, we had a guest from uh, uh, one of the front offices, and he said you should only play one team because that's how, if you're trying to imitate being a professional general manager, we only get one team each. So if you're running more than one, you're not really um, having a great deal of verisimilitude about how, how it works. Uh, Joe, you're always open and forthcoming about the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, uh, how you're doing with subscribers and stuff. What's the latest news on that score? You know, we closed up the fiscal year at the end of July, Patrick, and uh, had uh, 1,700 active subscribers at that point. Uh, got another 100 or so on a promotional plan, and then uh, with media hits and excuse me, with a media list and personal, I, I distributed to just shy of 2,000 people at this point. So I'm pretty happy with the way things are going. Uh, you know, renewal rates are good. Uh, in season, picking up new people is a little bit slow. Uh, I'm actually working on a piece right now talking about the state of the newsletter and, and where it fits in in the larger media landscape and what my plans for it are. That'll actually probably be out uh, right around the time this podcast comes out. But uh, I'm excited about it, and uh, I really feel like it's, it, it's proved the initial point. When I launched the newsletter in 2010, I was trying to make the point that the only way you were going to have high-quality content was to support it, was to have it supported by the readers. And when you look at the overall market now, um, I think that that's been proven out. Everybody's got their hand out now. And you know, the difference between you know, the ad-supported model just isn't working because the ad-supported model has to play to the lowest common denominator, whereas the athletic can say, hey, look, we're going we're gonna to collect money from the readers, we're going to pay writers money, and we're not going to worry about you know, having to reach 2 million people. We're going to do good content for the people who pay for it. Well, you mentioned the athletic. It's a really good example. I've seen a handful of attempts in the baseball, sports, fantasy spheres trying to emulate the model. What's your sense of the overall environment in that regard? Well, let's not forget. I mean, you've got you know Ron Chandler at HQ was doing this back in the 1980s, uh, before the internet even existed, trying to go direct to market. Uh, Rotowire went pay even before Prospectus did. I want to say they went pay in 2000 and 2001. Uh, Prospectus, we created the premiums here in 2003. Uh, it, it's just trying to move people off the model. When the Internet kind of became popular in the late 1990s and early 2000s, print publications just put everything online for free, and, of course, that didn't work. So uh, I think the Lord, you know, this has been coming for a while. And as you mentioned, there are smaller entities out there as well. Uh, my old BP colleague, John Corrado, has a newsletter. Uh, you've got the Boston uh, Sports Report with Greg Bedard. You've got Devin Kovacevich, if I'm saying that right, um, uh, with DK on sports in Pittsburgh, so a lot of these regional uh, entities. I want to say there's a Tennessee Titans newsletter by Paul Kaharski. Uh, Matt Trueblood has his Penning, uh, Penning Bowl newsletter. It, this is the way it's going to have to work, whether it's direct to, uh, you know, I, I pay you and you send me the articles, or a Patreon model. You know, a lot of podcasts go off the Patreon model. Uh, effectively, Wild's probably the most successful in that regard. You've got uh, Joe Pisnanski is actually starting uh, a new venture that he's going to finance through Patreon. So I'm excited for it. I think that the it, it's going to be difficult, and I say that as somebody who's got you know 1,700 subscribers and I'm happy with the way things are going. But you, it, it's hard to compete with the athletic. It's hard to compete when everybody has their hand out. I do think there's going to be a culling down the road, and uh, you know I think in 30 years. We're going to look back at the 1999 to 2012 period where everything was free online as the anomaly. We've been paying for words since Gutenberg up until about the end of the last century. The anomaly was the last few years, and I think we're starting to move back to a, hey, look, if you want to read quality words, you've got to pay for it. 
Now, as long as we're talking about this, and this is somewhat off the point of baseball, but there's a lot of concern growing in North America and especially in Europe, but uh, all over the place about privacy and the fact that when you look at something that you think you're getting for free, you're not. There's a saying that goes, uh, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And people are, are logging into these sites to read what they think is for free, and they're being amassed as part of an audience and then sold to advertisers. And that has a lot of deleterious ramifications for the uh, for that audience and for the business. I think the model that you're uh, endorsing here and that you're living through is a, is a fairer and just a better quality way of doing things. I hope it is. And like I said, I think that you make the, the good point here that nothing is actually free online. So, you know, whether, whether you're paying for it out of pocket or you're paying for it in your, your information, you're paying for it in some way. And some people have made that choice. I had somebody argue yesterday online. We were talking about... Uh, I think it was The Athletic, and they said, you know, I'd rather just, you know, read stuff for free, what I can get for free and not pay for it. That's great, um, but over time, that's going to go away, and over time, I think we haven't really seen yet, as you call it, the deleterious effects of this kind of data collection on individuals, um, and it only will take, you know, some, some event, whether a database gets hacked or a, a company wanting to act in a profit, uh, you know, a profitable way misuses this data in a way that violates people's trust. Uh, so no, I, I'm not saying that, that, that that's necessarily the reason to support paid content, but it is a reason to invalidate the argument that, well, I'll just read it for free. And I'll tell my listeners right now, the best reason to listen to paid content is you'll get more good content. If you pay for something, then the, the basic laws of economics say there will be a uh, supply to meet the demand as long as the demand is there. Uh, and speaking of the product and the demand and everything, the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, one of my favorite baseball reads for a long time, and you wrote recently about the trade deadline, and uh, we won't go through the actual trades, that's been hashed to death, but you wrote something that I found thematically interesting, which was that everyone acted rationally, and maybe for the first time. What did you mean by they acted rationally? There were no bizarre trades. There were there was nothing even along the lines of a Roldis Chapman for Glaber Torres and stuff. There was everything made sense. There was no, with the possible exception of the the Brewers trade for Mike Mustakas, which was really, I mean, that's really what stood out as kind of a huh move. We just didn't see a lot of mistakes. This industry now, and I know some people don't like that word, you know, there are 30 teams being run well. The bottom organization at this point is, I don't know, the Rockies maybe, and even they've developed an enormous amount of talent. They're just really bad at going outside the organization. Uh, you know, the Diamondbacks we joked about for years, well, they got rid of Dave Stewart. You know, the Twins and the Phillies were left in the dust for a while, but they're not anymore. They're modern organizations. It, it, I've been doing this now for 20-odd you know, years, the first prospectus. And I cannot believe how quickly we've gone from an organization, excuse me, a, a baseball, baseball teams being run as if it were still the 1960s to baseball teams being run as if it's the, 19, the 2020s. Excuse me. Um, it, it's fascinating to watch and just say, these teams are all smart now. I don't know that you could come at the baseball industry right now if you wanted to start something like Baseball Perspectives, which, you know, the start was basically saying, look, we know more because we're using data the teams are doing it wrong, this is how they should be doing it. Or even the Bill James Baseball Abstracts. I don't know you can do that now, because there's no inroad to say, you know, the teams are not doing it right. A lot of our early content was the teams are doing it wrong, and, you know, we know how to do it better. Um, and that might have been arrogant, but I think over a 20-year period, it's been shown out that the guys who were using data were doing it better. What's changed is that the data's gotten so much better. Teams are 
have these enormous, you know, data, you know, uh, operations, uh, analytical operations, where they have you know, a dozen guys looking at Statcast data and saying, how do we make the baseball team better? So um, <laughs> it's fascinating to watch. It's just the, the baseball teams are run better than they have been at any time in history. Of course, the the downside of that is they also are monopolizing the best talent, and they are making more and more of the data proprietary, which means guys like me can't go and uh, and haul it down as much as we might like to. Although, baseball savant puts the lie to that because I love baseball savant, and the the, the data are extremely thorough and complete. And I'll give them credit for allowing that out there. There's a lot of stuff that isn't out there that I wish were. You mentioned that. Uh, the business is getting smarter across the board, and there are no, for want of a better term, and this is my term, not yours, dumb teams. But I was struck by a theme in your uh, third, third, uh, your, the three thirds analysis that you did a couple of weeks ago. And you mentioned in particular that there's some quality of team management issues that still remain, and in particular, the ability or inability to accept the reality of a team's current situation, namely short-term thinking and versus long-term. You gave low marks to Kansas City, and you gave low marks to Toronto on this particular score. What was your reasoning in, in saying that they didn't do as well as they might have? Uh, I, I have to confess, Patrick, I'm going to focus on the GDH here. I don't remember... Uh, even thinking about the Royals. I think the Royals did what they had to do over the last couple of years. They wrote it out as long as they could. Now they're kind of stuck with what they, what's the aftermath of that with a bad farm system and a bad major league team and you know probably three or four years wandering in the wilderness. The Blue Jays, I thought at the start of the year, just had no business holding on to Josh Donaldson. Um, when you look at what they have coming through the system with Vlad Guerrero Jr., with Bo Bichette, uh, I'm not a big Kevin Vigio guy, but he's a prospect. There's uh, an outfit, a center fielder down there, his name I'm forgetting. I mean, this is one of the better farm systems in the game. And you can look, if you're the Jays, you look at this year in the American League and say, at best, we're playing for a wild card spot. You weren't going to beat out both the Yankees and the Red Sox. Uh, Josh Donaldson had that enormous second half last year. You could trade him at the start of the year, and the team acquiring him could get him and also know that if he left the free agency, they could get a, a draft pick at the end of the year. Um, and, you know, it just it made absolutely no sense for them to hold on to Donaldson. And by doing so, and to a lesser extent, you know, Estrada and Happ and some of the other guys, I think they really squandered the opportunity to add one more top-end guy to go with a Guerrero, et cetera. I think, it, I think this winter you could have reasonably brought back, you know, a top-50 prospect, maybe a couple of top-100 prospects for Donaldson to, to, that would have better time, been better time to when the Guerrero Bichette teams are going to be good in, in three years, and I, I that again we talk about you know most and this is still a good front office. It's bringing along these players, but that was one of the bigger mistakes I think we saw in the 2017-18 offseason. On the other side, you gave high marks to the White Sox for the way they've handled things. Uh, what has uh, Chicago been doing right? I mean, you know, Rick Hahn. Granted, they have the benefit of not only having talented players in Chris Sale and Jose Quintana and Adam Eaton, but they have quality players under, under control. They've given all three of those guys and reached agreement on these extensions that included options, which made the players as assets incredibly valuable. So you've got the player talent, but then you've also got the issue of, you know, how much are we going to have to play this player, pay this player, and how long will we have them under control? And by making those deals with those players, when it came time to rebuild, they were able to cash in. And they did so beautifully. I know Yon Makata, I got into an argument about him on Twitter three weeks ago or so. And, you know, Yon Makata feels like a disappointment. He's going to strike out 200 times. He's also going to be a three-win player in his first major league season. 
Um, I think there's a lot to build around there. We just saw Michael Kopech came up and, in a rain short and start, uh, make his debut. Uh, Elon Jimenez is tearing things up. Uh, you look eventually, you know, they like, you know, Lucas Giolito has been disappointing. Uh, Ray Dalton Lopez has been okay, but just the quantity of talent they brought back for those three guys, uh, jump started a rebuild that, you know, there wasn't a, that was not a very good farm system at the time they started that rebuild and it became one of the best in the game solely through trades. And I'm not sure I can remember a team ever doing that. And the White Sox will, in addition, now have the high draft picks. They have one this year, they'll have one next year, they'll have one the year following. Uh, that are going to build around. So no, I think the White Sox have done it absolutely right. Apparently the Cubs fans are coming for me with the sirens in the background. In general, Joe, which two or three teams do you think are at the top of the table as far as being well-managed at the front office or even ownership levels? Oh, boy. Um, I, I know Cardinals fans have been frustrated by their team over the last you know, three years. Uh, they fired Mike Matheny, Mike Schultz come in, they played well. I think the Cardinals are as well-run as a franchise over the last 50 years as any that you're going to find in Major League Baseball. And the Yankees, in the, Yankees since the George Steinbrenner suspension in 92-93, uh, have been incredibly well-run. Uh, by getting Steinbrenner out of the picture, it allowed that class of prospects to develop. They had success and really changed the entire course of the Yankees franchise. You look at the Red Sox with their willingness to spend money. Uh, Dave Dombrowski in, in the front office, they changed managers this year. Um, you have to like what the Dodgers have done. Uh, Dave Roberts, it's been a, a rough month for the Dodgers, but again, willingness to spend money, a front office that's incredibly smart, incredibly deep. Uh, I'm trying to think of anybody. You know, the Indians, I think the Indians are well run. I don't love Dolan as an owner, but when you look at uh, the front office with Chris Antonetti and his people, you look at Terry Francona as one of the best managers in the game. Uh, are still going to stand for the Rays. You know, nobody's paying attention to the Rays. They're going to win 85 or 86 games on no budget with... Uh, and nobody coming to the games. So I think the, that list, uh, and then, of course, the Cubs, uh, the Astros. It's, <laughs> it, it's hard to name two or three at That's this right, point. Man. I'm just kind of, you know, I, I named five, and I left out the teams that won the last two World Series. Can you name any that you think are not so good and still have some work to do in, in getting caught up to the field? I think the Royals, uh, I, I've, without digging too deep into the 2014-15 Royals, I think there were a lot of things that went right that are not replicable with those two years. I think they made a lot of decisions that weren't good, that they just kind of, for lack of a better word, got lucky. Um, they had an extreme outlier performance in 2015 that will probably never be repeated when it comes to contact rate. Uh, and when you hear some of the things Dave Morris said uh, about when he thinks this team is going to be good again, he thinks they can be good next year in 2020, and he's out of, absolutely out of his mind. Um, I think they executed a plan in the draft, taking all those college pitchers, I'd rather see you execute a bad plan, but taking a bunch of college pitchers for a team that's probably not going to be good until 2022 or 2023 doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, so I don't think the Royals are being run very well right now. I don't know what the Marlins are at this point, uh, but they're probably at the bottom of any list that you draw. As far as teams that are relevant, I look at the Rockies. Again, they've brought up so much homegrown talent, and if you just look at their homegrown players, they're a 95-win team. And every time they write a check, they do it badly whether it's Gerardo Parra, Ian Desmond, Wade Davis, of the thousands of relievers that they've signed, uh, they go outside the organization as badly as any team they've seen. So now those are the three that stick out at me. I think the Orioles are about to make a turnaround. They've been run pretty badly for a while. But uh, you know, I think they've kind of said, okay, this is what we have to do now. The Machado era is over, and you know, the, the, the best player on the next Orioles team is probably in high school right now. 
I think it might have been in your analysis of Colorado, maybe Minnesota, but you made a point about this uh, spending free agent money poorly or badly or unwisely. And uh, I think the point you made, which I found really interesting, is uh, it's something that's also said a lot about how uh, NBA teams are managed, that if you're not doing the job right, you're focusing too much on playing in the middle of the free agent market rather than at one of the two ends looking for cheap guys who might grow or getting superstar talent. And uh, is that a, that's been a problem with Colorado. They made a lot of bad choices in that regard. But almost all the bad teams you look at are characterized by bad free agent signings. And, and that's always been the case. We've been talking about this for, for decades now. Um, your bad free agent signings are going to be your middle market guys. Maybe they've had you know, one or two good years, but they're 31, 32 years old. And you're paying them like guys who are going to be superstars for, for a while. And uh, you know, the Rockies and Twins, it's teams that don't feel like they want to take on a $35 million player. They think that's too much risk. So they spend $35 million on four guys combined and, you know, for not as many years, and they end up getting a fraction of the performance. Talent and distributed. Talent in baseball is not distributed, distributed normally. It's the right end of the bell curve. It's the top of the pyramid. So you want to pay for the talent at the top of the pyramid or – you want to stay out of the middle of the pyramid and just throw $500,000, a million bucks at all the guys at the bottom. Uh, but you, it, it's spending, it's three years and $18 million for Mike Dunn that's going to that's gonna bite you. And the Rockies have done that over and over and over again. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, we've been talking about the, how the teams are managed, and it can be a lot of fun to talk about the big, uh, often boneheaded plays in that regard. But how much does the game miss Ted Turner and George Steinbrenner you mentioned, if only from the perspective of creating some excitement? Uh, is there a problem when the teams get so good at it that they don't make these kind of dumb errors that gives the rest of us something to talk about from November through February? It's funny you mention that because I just did a piece on for my monthly column for Baseball America. In the wake of the Mike Nassini firing, I went back to look, and that's become very unusual for a team that's above 500 to fire its manager in season. I think I have four examples this century, uh, and two of them were two of them were Jimmy Williams, another one was Ned Yost, and then Nassini being the fourth. And we just don't see this kind of chaos anymore. Teams are are, are run much more. Calmly, for lack of a better word, you're right. We don't have the, the big personality. You know, we talk about Peter Angelos um, as the you know, kind of the, the wild card, but as he's aged, he really hasn't been that kind of active owner. Um, if you go back and read books like Lords of the Realm or uh, Marvin Miller's bio or Bowie Coon's bio, you really get a sense for how much the owners were a part of the game in a way that they just aren't right now. And Patrick, I'll tell you right now, if I had to name all thirty owners at this point, I couldn't do it. I remember having to recently look up who the A's owner was. I knew it wasn't Lou Wolf anymore, but I couldn't remember who actually was, was the guy there. I think it's uh, Robert Fisher now. It's, uh, is it less than? I think, I think when you look at baseball trying to compete for uh, mindshare, I think it does hurt them a little bit. Uh, things that are going to lead shows like First Take, Around the Horn, High Noon, are going to be you know, the kind of the crazy things. And I think this is where the NBA, not so much at the owner level, but at the player level, there's just more interesting personalities uh, the NBA. I think, they, and I think the NBA's done a really good job of letting their players show their personalities. So, you know, it's not the, the best comp. I mean, the NBA owners, nobody knows who those guys are for the most part. But in the sense of how you break through to the mainstream casual sports fan in 2018, yeah, maybe baseball would be better off if it had a, a, a few more wild cards in the, the owner's box. 
On this topic, Joe, what did you make of Rob Manfred? Uh, he's had some uncomplimentary things to say about Mike Trout, who might only be the best ball player there's ever been because he's not uh, doing a, enough of a job. I don't know what the problem was, not promoting things well enough. All he does is go to hospitals and see sick kids, and maybe he should be tap dancing on ice skates between innings. I, I didn't understand what he meant. Did, did you get any handle on what he what he wants Mike Trout to do that he isn't already doing? It's it's the game's job to promote its players to the extent the players will wish to be promoted. I don't think Mike Trout really wants to be on a Wheaties box. Um, he did this national subway ad. Remember that. Um, and as you say, he does a lot of things at the at the at the, the, the small level. Well, you know, whether it's out, outreach or talking to kids at games or, or what have you. Um, I don't think Mike Trout's problem. I do think that it's Rob Manfred just kind of got himself to a bad spot in a press conference and probably said something he'd like he'd like to have back. I, I want to. I want to be careful about hanging Rob Manfred too care too much on the uh, <clears throat> on what he said in the live press conference. You know, I, I, I talk live on the radio, live on television, and occasionally I say something stupid too. Sometimes more than occasionally. Um, I will say this: baseball spent the 1970s calling the players great. It called spent the 1980s calling them disloyal. It spent the 1990s calling the players. Uh, they said they want to wreck the game. In the 2000s, the players got called cheaters. And now in the 2010s, baseball has finally woken up after 40 years of trashing the players and said, well, we want to market you now. I think it's fair for the players to say, hey, what if you'd marketed us the last 40 years instead of blaming everything in baseball on us? So I think you know, MLB has really made its own bed here. It trashed the players for two generations, and now it wants to market them. Earlier we were talking about uh, Toronto and their um, willingness or unwillingness to manage their team the way we might like, uh, and you wrote specifically about the manipulation of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s call-up and playing time at the major league level. Of course, fans in Toronto are still waiting, and you rightly describe the fact that the Blue Jays are not calling him up as a disservice to the player, to the fans, to the game, and I'll add on a personal note to his fantasy owners. But the rules of the game give control of the situation to the team, and the economic incentives really, Joe, almost forced Toronto to do what they're doing. They're going to miss a few months of Guerrero's, what, age 20 year in what is a lost season. And in return, they're going to gain a year or two of cost control in his prime. This seems like a no-brainer for a well-run team. How big a problem is this, do you think? And what can or should be done about the economic incentives to curtail these kinds of playing time shenanigans? Well, one, I don't want to hear about the economic incentives for Rogers Corporation which is a zillion-dollar corporation, and this is around the extra amount of money you might have to someday pay. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is rounding that. Please don't come to me with economic incentives for Rogers Corporation. Two, any player good enough to warrant this kind of treatment is a player you're going to sign to a long-term deal anyway. The chance that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. doesn't eventually sign some, some long-term deal is fairly small if he's the player we think he's going to be. It occasionally happens. Machado went to free agency. Uh, Harper's going to go to free agency, but by and large, a guy like Guerrero Jr. is going to sign one of those you know, big deals. It'll be more than the Longoria deal. I think players have learned not to give away all of their worth. But if you Jays, if Guerrero's the player we think he's going to be, he's he's going to be uh, he's going to be signed. Third, this isn't holding back Chris Bryant for ten days in April. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is probably the best player in the Jays organization right this very minute. He has been for maybe a month now. He's hitting four hundred. He, he, what is he, in 390 this year at two levels? He's got a chance to hit 400 for the year. 
this is holding him back, not for 10 days at the start of the season, but for three months in the season before, so that you can hold him back for 10 days at the start of next season. This is beyond the pale. This is why I'm saying if this was March and Guerrero was hitting 390 the way, you know, Ronald Acuna did this spring. I think we'd all say, okay, well, you want to hold him back for the 10 days for the extra year. This isn't that. This, 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 is, this is holding him back literally for four months so that you can control his 2020-9-0-1-2-3-4-2025 season, which is at least one collective bargaining agreement away where we don't even know what the rules are going to be. So I don't think this is valid in any way, shape, or form. I understand what you're saying, Patrick, about the, the incentives being what they are, but this isn't a normal situation. This is a massive corporation that could be putting it, the best player in the organization on the field and is going to hold him back for 70 or 80 games so as to, to gain some leverage in negotiations or you know, possibly gain an extra year of control seven years from now. I don't buy this. Joe, you've written that uh, this might not have happened if the players had a union, and of course you're being facetious, they do, but the union seems a lot weaker than it did in the days of Marvin Miller and Don Fair, and I'm not laying the blame at Tony Clark's feet by any means, but it seems like the uh, union, frankly, is being pushed around a little bit by the owners. And when I asked about the possibility of incentives, has the players' union erred in setting up or agreeing to the setup that allows these young players to be underpaid for several years at the starts of their careers, up to six in in the case of achieving free agency, and and not getting their free agent value even in arbitration or in extension signings because of the constraints that are imposed by the terms of the contract? Does the union need to be a little more hardball, do you think, in driving the next CBA? I do. Um, and I said this in advance of the last negotiations. The fundamental problem right now is that the baseball pay structure is based on seniority, and teams no longer care about seniority. Some of that is because the uh, we used to talk about the age 27 peak and the, the, the bell curve. That's changed. Players are about as good as they are when they enter the league now. Um, and it's a huge advantage now to be in your 20s. So a lot of the value players are ever going to create is before they're ever... Now, it's always been the case. Players are going to create most of their value become, before they become a free agent, but it's more extreme than ever before. So teams recognize that, finally. So a system that is designed to pay players based on seniority is running into 30 teams that simply aren't going to pay for seniority. Now, my argument is that MLB, uh, the players need to go into the last negotiation recognizing that. They didn't. They absolutely rolled over. They barely showed up for the negotiations, they got things like an extra seat on some training bus and chefs in every clubhouse. And these things matter. But what matters more is getting your guys paid. They should have pushed for a much higher uh, minimum salary. The biggest reason we have these tanking teams right now is because the difference between spending money and not spending money is so large. You know, if you get younger players paid with a higher base, that will trickle up through year two, three, four, and beyond. Um, I don't know... Sitting here now, we're still three years from negotiations. So I'm not going to tell you what they, what they should be doing then. But the biggest thing they have to do is try to put more money in the pockets of younger players, even if that means trading up. I shouldn't even say even if that means trading off uh, the, the rights of older players, because that's already been done. Nobody's going to start spending on two-win 32-year-olds. That, that is over. That is done. You're going to see the occasional dumb contract, but for the most part, teams are absolutely done paying, you know, giving a four-year $65 million deal to a 32-year-old who just had his, the first good year in two seasons. It's just not going to happen anymore. So the, the, the union has to sit down the next negotiation and say, look, we want a higher minimum, we want faster to arbitration, and figure out what they need to trade off to get to that. Because that's, that's the answer. The answer is getting younger players paid. 
And of course, there's been a fair amount written in the uh, sports economic press about the uh, declining share of baseball revenues that the players are getting. Everybody sees the big dollar contracts at the very top, the you know $30 million deals, which are actually getting relatively more rare. But what they're not seeing is that the uh, the revenue is growing much faster than the, than the salaries are. And I've always thought that it was uh, a bad idea for the players. And I think the members of the union who drove these kind of things were those two win 30-year-olds who wanted to collect a, a, a one last big contract. And as you say, nowadays, it seems like the teams are looking at it and go, I can get a one and a half win young guy for 500 grand. I'm not going to pay you 16 million. And it's actually the, the way the structures were, has turned out, those marginal older players who are getting their second kick at free agency are not attractive properties anymore by their own design. It was uh, probably 15 years ago during the 2002 negotiation, CBA negotiation, that you know we were getting some pushback and prospectus about being uh, pro player, which I, I, I was not not pro because the players of the game, because you know the players generally don't lie about what they're making because they can't. But but the biggest thing I said was you know we're pro player, but it, a baseball. Baseball teams, a baseball industry run by prospectus types would be terrible for the players. And that's been borne out. The front offices are now run by people with that data-driven mindset, and it's been terrible for the players. The players do make a declining share of revenue, although I guess Ben Lindbergh did some research and said, well, if you count benefits and such, it's not that bad. Um, but the, the front offices now are all being run from that prospectus mindset, which is don't pay for, for service time. You can always find younger players to provide the same production that your $8 million veteran is going to be. So it's kind of funny to see that come to fruition now. Um, and I don't think the union said the union didn't adjust for it in 12. It didn't adjust for it in 16. It has to adjust for it in 2021, I think, but maybe not. It's entirely, uh, one of the arguments that's been made is all of the real wars have been won, arbitration, free agency, uh, and things like that. And the players might just be like, you know what? We've got it pretty good right now. It, it's, it's harder to get, I don't know that the players right now can sustain a strike. If you're a union that can't sustain a strike, you have absolutely no leverage right now. The only thing you have is the strike card. So if the union can't sustain a strike, and I have my doubts that they can, then all of this is just talk, and the owners are going to get to do whatever they want in the next CBA negotiation until the players, none of whom has ever been out on strike, none of whom has ever really seen a labor war, are willing to have one. You and I can just talk forever, and it's not going to make a difference. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, we talked about the Jays and Vlad Jr. They've got some other prospects in the pipeline as well. Uh, Kevin Biggio, you mentioned, he'll be at the uh, Arizona Fall League, so we'll uh, be able to see him at First Pitch Arizona. They have uh, Bo Bichette, and they got a catcher named Danny Jansen, a minor league plate patience demigod, uh, and he's already up and playing and doing pretty well. What kind of offensive team might the Jays be fielding next year or the year after, depending on how strong they feel? Yeah, it could be one of the better offensive teams in the league, which you know will make them a challenger for the second wild card. You know, the Jays have the same problem they had was ten, twelve years ago. I did a, I looked, I did a study, and this was a while back. And like the Jays over a ten-year period, in like bridging two thousand ten, we'll say just I'll pull out numbers, so say two thousand six, two thousand thirteen or so, were like the ninth best team in baseball over that time. And nobody knew it because they played in the American League East, which means they played this ridiculous schedule. They never made the playoffs. Um, and they and, you know, they win 83 games. And they'd be like, well, that's the Jays again. 
but they were actually the quality of a 90-win team, but, but the schedule and the competition level that we didn't know. I think it's entirely possible the Jays could build the seventh-best team in baseball, and we would never know it because they're facing off against the, the uh, Yankees and Red Sox, who, you know, uh, it's not just the money. The money helps, but these are incredibly well-run organizations that put a ton of money into you know, scouting and international development, uh, you know, when Theo Epstein took over the Red Sox, he wanted to call. He said, "Yeah, I want that to be a hundred million dollar development machine." Well, that's basically what they've become. And of course, the Yankees are as active as any team internationally. So, uh, I think the Jays objectively have a really good future in front of them, but we're never going to know unless they manage to find a way to get transferred to the NL East. In a preview, you noted uh, how daunting Cleveland's going to be in a short series because they can throw, uh, at the time, Kluber, Bauer, Carrasco in a, in a five-game series, which is a very, uh, very strong start. But Bauer's out indefinitely, maybe even into the playoffs. How does the calculus change for Cleveland's playoff chances given the loss of Trevor Bauer? The nature of the postseason is that no one player moves the needle all that much. The difference between Bauer and you know, Mike Clevenger or Shane Bieber you know, getting one start in a five-game series, getting two starts in a seven-game series is pretty small. I also don't think this injury is going to keep Bauer out of the playoffs. I think the fact that the Indians have a seven-million-game lead in the Central over a bunch of sub-500 teams makes it easy for them to just say, hey, look, go take four to six weeks, make two starts in the season's last you know, couple of weeks, and, and get ready to go. I fully expect Bauer to start the second game in the playoffs with the Indians. The playoff structure itself, especially the play-in game, which I know uh, you make fun of on a regular basis, but also that best-of-five divisional round, it seems to alter the dynamics of what makes teams successful versus how they succeed in the regular season. Is that okay with you? And what do you think could be done to make the tournament more likely to reward better, more complete teams rather than teams that can front-load a, a lot of stars? There's nothing you can do. I mean, we used to talk about the playoffs being, you know, Depth don't count was Bill James's line back when we had said the two levels of playoffs. Um, depth probably matters more because you're playing longer, and you see teams even start to manage that in the regular season in terms of workloads and things like that. But um, there's just nothing you can do to change the nature of baseball. And when we get to the playoffs, remember, it's all good teams. It's all teams that were separated by, you know, maybe well, let's say you're 13 games ahead of your opponent. Uh, by the end, by, when you get to the playoffs. Well, that's a half a game a week. That's a rounding error in a, in a best-of-five or a best-of-seven series. You know, if you wanted to have the best team win, what you do is you play 162 games and don't have playoffs. <laughs> I mean, that's what... And I don't have a problem with it because I don't look... I can look at the two different things. I, I, I'm the guy who says, look, the tournament is a lot of fun and it crowns a champion and everybody wants to be in the dog pile at the end of the year. But don't mistake the team in the dog pile for the best team. You judge the best team over 162 games. You judge the championship by who gets through the brackets. It's, it's only when we conflate the two things that I start to, uh, you know, or get into the issues of, well, they won because they have heart and character. No, they won because they're, they're a really good baseball team, and they, they, they played a little bit better over, you know, best of seven series. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think there's anything you can reasonably do. I think fewer off days would maybe be a thing, but you've got TV. You've got travel considerations. You can't say to the Yankees and Angels, you have to play at 7.30 p.m. in New York on a Thursday, and then you have to pay, play at 4 p.m. You know, L.A. time on a, on a Friday. You, just, you can't do that. 
And Joe, you wrote about the surprisingly strong performance we've seen this year from Oakland. I think you had them in your uh, third of the season uh, analysis as the team that you got the most wrong in your preseason guesses uh, about where how many runs they'd score and give up. And uh, been a very pleasant surprise for Oakland and their fans. Uh, they think they're a game out in the uh, American League West, which nobody would have guessed as we speak. What has Oakland done so right with their usual subpar payroll? Yeah, I had them as the 25th best team in baseball so far this year. And I, uh, at the start of the year, I think they're the fourth, fifth, fourth best record as we speak, or maybe the fifth. Um, they've started to get some value out of the draft. For There's like a five-year stretch there where like Sonny Gray was their only contributor out of the draft. They just drafted so incredibly poorly. They did nothing internationally. So their teams, even the good ones, were entirely, you know, they won this trade or they dragged this guy off the, the scrap heap. And they've done a lot that too. The entire rotation right now is basically, you know, it's Sean Manai and a bunch of scrap heap guys. But uh, the real key, though, is getting that performance in the draft. Lou Trevino has been incredible out of the bullpen. Matt Olson stepped in, been a, you know, the average, average plus first baseman. Matt Chapman is one of the best defensive third basemen in baseball, and he's been a far better hitter than I thought he would be. I thought he was going to be kind of a low OBP guy, and he's really surprised me with his ability to get on base. Um, he would have been a down ballot. He might be a down ballot MVP candidate anyway. Um, with the missed time. Uh, the upgrades, particularly Chapman, really changed the defense. Um, they played Dustin Fowler in center a bunch. Now they're going with Ramon Laureano. But this is a team that was middle of the pack defensively last year and bad defensively the year before that. Now it's the best defensive team in baseball. And when you have a starting rotation that doesn't strike out anybody, that's enormous. So if they didn't have a defense this good, and mind you, that's what playing Chris Davis in left field a bunch, and Chris Davis a bad left field. But at the team level, they're the best defensive team in baseball. So the combination of finally getting something out of their farm system and putting the best defensive team in baseball on the field, neither of which, I'll be honest with you, I kind of see the farm system thing coming with Chapman and Olsen coming up last year, but I never saw them going from a middle-of-the-pack defense to a great one. And then, you can, you know, the offense is a very 2010s offense. They draw walks, they hit home runs. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a great story. I think you got to give, again, that front office a lot of credit for doing it with the lowest payroll in baseball in a park that nobody really wants to Nobody really wants to go to, although you know their attendance is up this year because they're contending. But uh, I definitely didn't see that coming. And they're in a year that was supposed to be so striated with the seven great teams and then you know a bunch of teams tanking. I'm glad that we have at least one of these stories to point to. Well, Joe, this has been interesting as heck so far. Uh, maybe we'll let you take a breather and get you back in a few minutes in the second part of the show. Sounds good. Joe Sheehan writes for the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, and he'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the Take me out with the crowd. HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitz. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. We have Jock Thompson on deck with the American League News. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. 
Washington Nationals made some news this week, trading uh, second baseman Daniel Murphy. He's really been a hot batter the last little while. He goes to the Chicago Cubs for infielder Andrew Monasterio and a player to be named later or possibly cash. The Nats also dealt Matt Adams back to his old stomping grounds in St. Louis. So the fire sale is on in Washington. Let's start with the Daniel Murphy deal. Tom Kephart covered the story for playing time today at Baseball HQ. From the Cubs angle, where does Daniel Murphy fit in on the north side? Well, Daniel Murphy will replace Addison Russell, who went on the DL. Uh, it's unclear at this point whether Murphy will play regularly, uh, but comments from the Chicago Cub brass suggest he likely will. Uh, Murphy is swinging, as you said, a very hot stick. He's uh, widely appreciated as a hitter who consistently provides professional at-bats with the elite contact, similar to the, the new teammate Ben Zobrist. So with uh, Chris Bryant on the DL and Addison Russell ailing, uh, Javi Baez will slide to shortstop or third base. Uh, while Bryant remains sidelined, and uh, that opens second base for Murphy. Uh, Russell seems to experience the largest uh, playing time dip once uh, Bryant comes back. And in fact, I believe I saw that Addison Russell has also been sent to the DL, uh, so it looks like they're, they're, they'll move things around. Uh, I guess the question, Nick, is once Russell comes back, it'll be kind of him versus Murphy for the, for the playing time because they're not going to remove Javier Baez. He's an MVP candidate. Uh, do you think that Murphy stays in and Russell stays on the bench? Well, it may depend on who's swinging the hotter bat at the moment and who's getting the most run production because that's certainly what they need to worry about at this point in time while they're staying in a, in a pennant race. So my guess it was, is that it will depend upon who's hitting. Uh, and at this point, it's certainly been Murphy. Phil Hertz covered the Adams trade for playing time today from the St. Louis perspective. What will Adams' role be with the contending Cardinals? Probably a reduced role for Adams now that he's uh, back in back in St. Louis. Uh, this is uh, especially so since he's been slumping lately. Since uh, July 1, he has a 221 uh, XBA, down 70 points from his pre-July 1st numbers. And his, uh, his expected uh, power index like uh, since July 1 is only 107. Before July 1st, it was 155. So Adams will likely be the Cardinals' primary left-handed pinch hitter. Uh, we probably won't see him getting a whole lot of starts. He may play first occasionally with Matt Carpenter moving to third and Jed Jorko on the bench. Uh, they also have three games in Detroit next month, and we'll need a DH, and Adams could be the DH in some or all of those ball games, but probably a reduced role for Adams in St. Louis. Speaking of St. Louis, they sent outfielder Marcelo Zuna to the 10-day DL. He's got an inflamed shoulder. It's causing him a lot of throwing trouble. Does that somehow result in a little more playing time opportunity for Adams, or who's going to get Ozuna's playing time? Yeah, Ozuna had really been raking of late. He'd been having a, a subpar season until recently, and now with his shoulder trouble that makes it hard for him to throw, he'd been heating up with the bat. So uh, his arm strength has really been subpar all season with this shoulder inflammation. He got a cortisone shot on Wednesday and will likely be out until early September. Uh, while he's out, Adams could get some playing time. St. Louis also has other options. Uh, including Jose Martinez, who has heated up a bit lately, and he was already at 25% of the playing time in the outfield on our depth chart. But uh, St. Louis had cut his playing time because he's really such not a, he's really just a bad defensive outfielder. Uh, he's had an OPS well over 800 the last uh, the last month, a couple of homers, 16 RBIs, and 88 at bats. So they may try to get uh, Jose Martinez into the lineup, especially with Ozuna out. Yeah, they've. Uh, it seems to me that I've been reading they've been focusing more on uh, the defensive side of the ball. It seems to be what's powering uh, a little bit of their uh, of their advance to the top of the wild card standings. So uh, uh, Jose Martinez may be swinging, but 
gosh, if he doesn't improve his defense, they, that may be something that they look at and go, we just can't afford this. It's an interesting play. I think I would be interested in Jose Martinez all the same because uh, St. Louis also needs uh, the offense, as you suggest. Now, with Washington having traded both Daniel Murphy and Matt Adams, they're going to see some big changes in their roster. What, what do you expect to see in Washington? Well, I, I think, first of all, utility infielder Wilmer Defoe seems likely to take over as the everyday second baseman. His biggest contribution to fantasy teams may be an occasional stolen base. Uh, in 304 at-bats entering play on August 21st, he had six swipes on the strength of a 131 uh, expected speed. Otherwise, he hasn't contributed much. A 246 expected batting average of 43 expected power index. Uh, to fill those vacant roster spots, the Nationals called up uh, Andrew Stevenson and infielder Adrian Sanchez. Both have been up before, neither has done much. Stevenson has a career 231 expected batting average and a 29 expected power index. And Sanchez's comparable numbers are 239 and a wonderful 16 expected power index. So don't expect anything from either of them. And just as a reminder for our listeners, the uh, power index is based on a 100 league average. So if you're down around 29 or even worse, 16, you're well short of league average power. And, and league average power is these days you know, 18, 20 home runs, something like that. So you're looking at maybe one or two at the most uh, going down the stretch, barring some kind of miraculous turnaround in that regard. These were both expected levels, and that's uh, kind of one order removed from actual levels, but they're pretty predictive. Uh, We have a week left to go before the post-waivers trade deadline, which will allow playoff eligibility. What do you think of the likelihood that Washington might yet trade Bryce Harper? Well, GM Mike Rizzo said earlier that Harper is not on the block. But that was when the Nationals thought they might uh, be within reach of a playoff slot. So uh, they look now like they're really pulling the the pin on all these trades. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see Harper on the move. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next week to see whether they decide to go ahead and move him. And it will be because at this point, I can't see much of a return, even for a star of Bryce Harper's caliber, for basically a five-week rental. He's a free agent at the end of the season. He's a terrific player, but uh, Joe Sheehan said earlier in the show, Nick, teams are being a lot smarter about that sort of thing these days. Uh, It's not that long ago where we could expect to see if Bryce Harper was traded for five weeks, somebody would give up a top 100 prospect, or somebody would maybe even give up a fringe major league or something like that. Uh, I think now it'll be a case of them just trading away to save some money on his salary, that kind of thing. Um, Over in San Diego, Christian Villanueva, the third baseman, a rookie who's having a pretty good year he goes to the DL he broke his finger and his season is probably over yeah he broke his finger in a game on Tuesday against Colorado Uh, manager Andy Green told the San Diego media that the three-week estimate seems really too short for that to heal and this report suggests that he could miss uh, three to four weeks Uh, but uh, Andy Green doesn't seem optimistic about that timetable when he talks about the injury Uh, the Padres are already playing Will Myers at third base and they would like that to be his position in the future Uh, although he recently took a ground ball in the face, and his status is kind of uncertain at the moment. Uh, They were spotting Villanueva in all the other infield positions, hoping to develop him as a super utility guy like Marvin Gonzalez. Uh, And so uh, his playing time had been been down a little bit anyway, uh, and there was not really a member of the regular lineup at this point, more of a spot spot start replacement kind of guy. 
The Padres uh, looking at Will Myers, uh, boy, did you happen to see the highlight of that uh, ground ball he took? It was nasty, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he broke his nose, may have taken some damage to his teeth. Uh, he could be uh, on the DL shortly as well. It would be too bad for Will Myers, who's uh, had a really a, a, a star-struck career in the wrong way. Uh, fans were waiting in San Diego to hear that the Padres might call up their prized infield prospect, Luis Urias. Uh, is that going to happen? Urias has been red hot at AAA, a 295 batting average, 845 OPS. Uh, but the Padres have instead called up Carlos Asuei, as you said, uh, who's been a little better at 309 batting average and 851 OPS in El Paso. So uh, it seems inevitable that Urias is going to be stuck in the minors at least until we get to the September call-ups. Uh, Asuei has struggled at the major league level, uh, 696 OPS last year, 575 this year, and 215 at-bats. So we're not going to see a lot of help at the uh, third base slot in uh, San Diego unless Myers manages to stay off the DL. Uh, we had two closers activated from the disabled list. Uh, start once more in Washington. A lot of news out of Washington these days. Not all of it about politics and court cases. Uh, Kelvin Herrera gets back on the roster. He was their closer with Sean Doolittle out. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the Nationals for playing time today. I'm going to assume Kelvin Herrera goes straight back to that ninth inning role. Yeah, I think so. He was not only activated, but he pitched successfully on August 21st, a shutout inning with one strikeout. Uh, but it hasn't been a ball of cherries since Herrera got to Washington. Since July 1st, he has a four, 5.49 expected earn run average, a 54 BPV. So not what you want out of a closer, and certainly has not done what they expected him to do when they traded for him. Uh, despite that last success, it's likely that he will push Cody Glover back to middle relief and... Uh, He'll probably return to the closer's role until Sean Doodle gets back. Uh, Glover did get one save while all of Washington's closers were out, but it came with an 8.68 expected earn run average and a minus 133 BPV. Think you could do that well? <laughs> you know what? I was just I was just what I was thinking. I wonder if I could go out there and have a minus one thirty three BPV. Maybe when I was younger, Nick. You know, I could I could throw pretty hard when I was younger. Not so much anymore. But that uh, fifty four BPV. I, I just want to say something about that. Uh, base performance value is a kind of a compendium of all the skills metrics that Baseball HQ tracks for pitchers. And usually, what you're looking for as a kind of a baseline is seventy. I've always thought they should index it to one hundred, like everything else. But uh, so far, that has fallen on deaf ears but 54 is is really low and for a sort of an elite closer we're looking at 100 plus aren't we yeah definitely i mean i you know 100 plus is what we want to see from the club from a closer and so getting down in the 54 level says danger all kinds of uh, red flags ahead and this guy is not going to keep the role very long yeah, I think that there's a level of 200, which we used to call prime Eckersley level or something like that. He had a couple of years where his base performance value metrics were over 200. Right. And so safe to say Kelvin Herrera is not another Dennis Eckersley. Uh, Tommy Malone was placed on the DL to make room for Herrera. What do we think about Tommy Malone's future? Well, probably his brief run as a Washington starter is likely over. Washington is going to try younger pitchers in the rotation as they kind of play out the, the season. So, uh I don't think we'll see Tommy Malone back in the rotation uh, anytime soon. And not a huge fantasy loss anyways. Uh, finally, our other closer, Kenley Jansen, uh, got back from the DL uh, after he went on it with some heart problems. Uh, not an auspicious start. He took a loss on Wednesday night. Jock Thompson covers the uh, team for the playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. And again, I'm going to make an assumption here. Uh, Kenley Jansen slots right back in into the closer role. 
Yeah, I think no surprises there because they were having they were struggling a bit with him out. Uh, the only significant adjustment here will be the LA safe projection. And even though uh, Jansen coughed up two home runs and was tagged with a loss on his first night back, uh, healthy Jansen still owns the ninth inning in LA, uh, and uh, they need him there. They do indeed. It's shaping up to be a terrific uh, last five weeks in the National League. Uh, the American League looks a lot more settled as far as the playoff results. But gosh, uh, we were talking before we started the call here, and there's eight or nine teams, uh, something like that, within eight games of the wild card spot. It's and there's pennant races in the divisions as well. It's going to be a great, uh, great time to watch the National League. Should be a great finish in the in the National League. A- absolutely, it'll be interesting to see if uh, with the, with this. Uh, trade deadline coming up if any major moves get made in the next week. Yeah, we we talked about how uh, the uh, Nationals finally gave up, and there's teams behind them that still seem to think they're in it. Uh, You told me that uh, Buster Posey was looking at season-ending surgery, and the Giants postponed it because they think they're still in, and they're the bottom team of the bunch. That's right. At least they're not willing to give up yet. They're going to keep keep kicking at least for another week or so and see what uh, what they can do before they let Posey get the surgery that he needs to be back and, and better for next season. All right, Nick, very interesting week of uh, National League news, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Maybe there'll be even more. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Hey, Jock. Hey, PD. Well, the New York Yankees are slowly falling into a battle for the wildcard spot with the surging uh, Oakland team and uh, maybe even Seattle uh, doing pretty well. And the Yankees just took two big injury hits. They lost shortstop Didi Gregorius to what is being described as a significant bruise to his left heel. And there's no timetable for his return. And then on top of that, uh, they put Aroldis Chapman, their closer, on the DL with knee inflammation, not the first time for him. And again, no ETA on a return. What is the uh, New York situation and the how are they going to weather this storm? First, let's talk about Didi Gregorius. Yeah, both of these are tough losses. Uh, I actually think the Yankees are going to be okay uh, in in real baseball. They've got uh, about an eight game wild card cushion. They're the, they're the first wild card uh, over uh, over Oakland right now, so they should be fine if the, if they get these guys back anytime before October. Um, but what Gregorius's fantasy owners do is another story. Since he was having another solid season, and arguably like uh, Matt Dodge noted in his Playing Time Today piece. He's been the most valuable Yankee. He was on pace just for another another really good year. Uh, right now, it looks like the Yankees are going to move Glaber Torres from second base to shortstop. Uh, Neil Walker's time gets a bump up. He's going to be playing more second base. That's what happened on uh, this past Wednesday night, which would be October twenty or I'm sorry, August twenty second. Um, and that's that looks like the way the Yankees are going to go on that one. Sounds like that's going to add some value to Glaber Torres as a keeper because he's going to pick up that shortstop eligibility for next year. Does it help Neil Walker and Ronald Torres any as far as their value for 2019? Um, yeah, I mean, probably. I mean, I don't think – I'm not even sure. I don't own Walker. Has Does he have any time at uh, – does he have 20 games at second base? I'm not – I know he's played all over the field. Yeah, he's got he's – got, 20 games already at second base and and 39 at, at first so he's probably in the clear there in terms of uh, of 25 leagues uh Torres absolutely the lad value and who knows uh fantasy owners uh 
not in deep leagues might want to take a chance on Walker. Uh, he's always been a good hitter up until this year. He's had a hard time finding a niche on the Yankees, being a utility player and moving all around, not playing regularly. But uh, he's a pretty pretty good hitter before this year. Perhaps even bigger, the uh, news about Aroldis Chapman. He's had knee issues in the past. Now he's got some kind of tendonitis diagnosed in his left knee. Uh, how do the Yankees weather this particular storm? Yeah, this this uh, yeah, again here. The Yankees have plenty of bullpen depth. Uh, it sounds like Dylan Batanza is going to be the primary with Zach Britton versus tough lefties, and of course you got ex closer David Robertson waiting in the wings uh, if he's necessary. Uh, Batanza has really turned his 2018 around. I don't think anybody's pitching better than him um, these days. Uh, uh, he had a really bad April, um, but uh, they have they have plenty of depth um, if they can just uh, get through these next three four weeks. I I think they're going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, what fantasy owners do here is another story. Uh, I like Batances. Uh, I, also, I also like Zach Britton. Uh, I'm pretty sure um, Aaron Boone isn't, uh, isn't afraid to mix it up a little bit at the back of the Yankee uh, bullpen when it comes down to closing out games. And uh, I understand what you're saying. Batances has been terrific. I think he's uh, 19 strikeouts to one walk in, in 11 innings uh, and a single run on a home run. But I remember in the past, Ellen Batons is stepping up to be the closer because of uh, situations. He hasn't always looked that confident or good as the closer in those fill-in roles. That's a really good point, and, and some guys never can do that. So it is going to be interesting to see what Batances do from here. He's getting another chance just because he's been so dominant. So uh, it will be interesting. But again, if he fails, uh, the Yankees got guys they can bring in to pick him up. And it should be noted, uh, Zach Britton has a 5.5 walks per nine rate, which may, uh, Matt Dodge suggests, indicate that he's not fully recovered from that Achilles injury. Yeah, that's true. Um, he's uh, always been tough on lefties, but uh, yeah, this is not vintage Zach, Zach Britton. So, um, so you're right. It's not an ideal situation. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens here. And one last point about uh, David Robertson, currently day-to-day with a sore right shoulder, so it's a walking wounded kind of deal in the New York Yankees bullpen. This will be something to watch for sure. Uh, In Cleveland, the recently acquired center fielder Leonis Martin has been declared out for the year. He came down with a really bad bacterial infection, Jock. They were talking about it potentially being life-threatening. I think he's out of that particular uh, danger zone, but the Indians outfield is now back into a bit of chaos. It's been an issue all year for them. Uh, Martin's gone, Lonnie Chisenhold's gone, Rajai Davis just went on the DL with what they're calling a non-baseball situation. He's having some kind of uh, surgery. Uh, Bradley Zimmer's uh, out, Tyler Naquin's out. Who's going to get the playing time in center field? This Cleveland outfield has been uh, has been banged up all year. It looks right now, uh, it looks like right now, just with, with, with all of these injuries, it's finally down to Greg Allen, who's kind of a fourth outfielder type uh he's got plus speed uh he's stolen 11 bases and 187 at bats and his his 254 batting average during that time hasn't been bad if he can keep his hit hit rate up maybe the speed will be worth it uh and he's actually performed better in the second half he's been uh 321 batting average through 84 at bats in the second half so if you're in a deep league and you need stolen bases more than you need power he may be your guy but but, but you got to keep in mind that Obviously, Cleveland is still on the hunt for outfield upgrades, so Allen isn't a sure thing going forward. Cleveland's also operating a right field platoon with Melky Cabrera getting the lion's share on the right-hand pitching side, and Brandon Geyer 
hitting and hitting well against left-handed pitching. Any chance that that platoon could develop into a regular center fielder if Allen starts to scuffle? Yeah, Melky Cabrera is platooning. He has the strong side of a platoon, and he's really been a godsend for, for Cleveland. If you remember, they signed him once, and then they then they released him back when it looked like their outfielders were getting uh, were getting well, and, and Melky had started off. He slumped a little bit. They kind of rushed him up from his mid-year uh, stint in the minors to get back into shape. But then after uh, after the tribe got banged up again, they re-signed him, and he's been gangbusters ever since then. Like you said, uh, nine 9-10 OPS in the second half through 91 at-bats. Um, I've always been a fan of Melky Cabrera in terms of his ability to hit coming off the bench. Uh, he should get a, a shot at full-time play over the uh, over the, the course of the rest of the season. He's 12 for 34 against uh, left-handed pitchers. I'm not sure Gaier's going to do any better than that. Uh, so I, I think he's a, a, a good hold right here uh, over these final six weeks. The White Sox finally called up their uh, pitching phenom prospect, Michael Kopech, and uh, he's going to pitch down the stretch, I guess, but what are the chances he sticks around and is going to be able to help a fantasy team? You know, I didn't get to see his debut effort, which was range-shortened down to two scoreless innings, but he struck out four hitters and he didn't walk anybody, so it has to uh, be viewed as successful. He'd been on a roll in AAA. I think he had a 59 to 4 strikeout to walk ratio over, over his last seven AAA starts in 44 innings. And and I think unless you've been hiding under a rock, everyone knows that he, he was really struggling with his control before that. Uh, I, I think his biggest problem right now in the short term over these next six weeks, that he, he has an absolutely terrible White Sox team supporting him. Uh, um, He's not going to get great offensive support. His defense is atrocious. No bullpen help at all. Uh, I've seen these guys make some horrendous base running mistakes. Um, I just don't think he's going to get any help. And that being said, he has the ability to strike out major league hitters right now in droves. So if you're a fantasy owner looking for strikeouts down the stretch, this is a guy you might want to pick up. Now, we only have him for, I think, uh, 4% uh, innings pitch. Not quite sure what that translates to here looking at it uh it's not very much i think he's going to pitch uh i think he's going to pitch more than that down the stretch for the white Sox. Uh, the only question is what he's going to do besides uh, get your strikeouts and i'm going to guess that james shields is looking over his shoulder yeah i think uh, i think all the white Sox pitchers are, are looking over their shoulder right now i think we still have james shields uh projected for a lot of innings uh he hasn't been particularly good lately his era is up near uh well it's 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 actually it, it overall it's still decent i guess for the white Sox. 4.39 and 164 innings pitches uh dylan covey's going to be looking over his shoulders 5.9 era uh carson fulmer 807 the list goes on i don't think kopech's going to have any problems breaking into that rotation and as if that weren't tough enough for a young pitcher trying to make a, make his way in the big leagues, uh, the uh, White Sox also lost their most prolific run producer, probably their best offensive player in quite a long time. Uh, Jose Abreu's uh, going to need some surgery for some groin issues that he's having uh, down in the lower abdomen. That could be tough. Uh, he's going to be out at least two weeks, maybe longer. Rick Green covers the White Sox for playing time today. How, if they can at all, are the White Sox going to handle the loss of Jose Abreu? Yeah, I mean, when you think about a White Sox team without Jose Abreu, who's pretty much the heart of that offense, uh, you, you just got to wonder, you know, how how any pitcher is going to win any games for them. Now, Abreu's not at his typical 290, 300 batting average this year, but then again, who is? Uh, 
but still a 272 batting average looks pretty decent these days and his home run RBI production he's pretty much on pace for the same season he's had uh, over the pre- previous three four uh, 30 home runs uh, 90 100 RBIs uh, of course that'll go down the drain he's going to be out for probably three weeks uh, it looks like Matt Davidson and Nicky Delmonico are going to are going to fill in uh, they're going to get some some DH first base uh, time but they sure aren't Jose Abreu I saw Delmonico showing some signs of life recently. Uh, Matt Davidson came out of the gate like a uh, house on fire, but uh, ever since then hasn't been quite the uh, hitter that he started out. Yeah, Delmonico's been uh, been on fire in uh, in August and even a little before that. I think he has something like six home runs in his last 100 at bats. So if you're playing the hot hands, and uh, a lot of us do down the stretch, I mean, uh, anything can happen to a skill set. Uh, if you're playing the hot hands, Delmonico might be an interesting flyer to take. And Davidson might be a power source if you can stomach the batting average. He's down around 225, 230, something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much, uh, we're pretty much looking at this the same way. And finally, uh, in your stomping grounds down there in the Anaheim area, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim have put uh, Justin Upton on the DL, the latest outfielder for them to go to the injury list. Uh, you wrote about this in Playing Time Today, Jock. Uh, the White so- uh, I'm sorry, the Angels are already missing uh, Mike Trout. Now they miss Upton. Could anything go worse for the for the uh, Angels? I don't think so. But then again, whenever I think that, it always does. Uh, that outfield looks awful right now. Trotter's actually missed all but one game in August with a wrist problem, and and of course this has been extended recently with the death of his uh, his brother-in-law. Um, word is he's likely to return back this weekend. Eric Young has been filling in uh, pretty decently uh, for him in uh, in center field. He's only hitting 254, but he's got four stolen bases in uh, 71 plate appearances. So he'll help you there. I I, I think uh, when Trout comes back, that's uh, Upton's absence is likely to extend his playing time. Uh, you've got Jabari Blash, who took Upton's roster spot. He may get some chances down the stretch here, and that's something I'm in favor of. I've always liked Blash's power. Uh, obviously, he has big-time swing and miss, but nowadays that hasn't been automatically disqualifying. I'd like to see what he could do with maybe a couple of weeks of, of playing time, and it's obviously nothing that's going to hurt the Angels now, given that they're pretty much out of it and just auditioning people for 2019. All right, Jock, I understand you're taking a little trip up to Northern California and Nevada. Uh, Be careful about the fires and have a great time. We'll talk to you in a week. Thanks, PD. See ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content I've seen this week that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, Bullpen's analyst Doug Dennis looks at all the relievers who have met very stiff skills filters and some of those names might surprise you. In from A to Zinke, Baseball HQ columnist Fred Zinke looks for some late season power. In The Speculator, columnist Ryan Bloomfield discusses some September experiments. And in Facts and Flukes, HQ analyst Brian Rudd looks at performances by five National Leaguers, including Trey Turner, Steven Souza, and Nick Pavetta. 
And those are just five articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, as I mentioned, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides columns analyzing hitters, starters, and relievers. We have fantasy market analysis and injury analysis, Plus, there are roster planning tools like the player projections, the daily dashboard, and leading indicators. Add up all the content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and you'll see why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Tampa shortstop prospect Wander Franco is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. While the Tampa Bay Rays are currently mired in third place in the AL East, more than 15 games behind the front-running Boston Red Sox, the organization is heading in the right direction with young talent in the majors and the minors. One player who could eventually emerge as the face of the franchise is 17-year-old prospect Wander Franco. The switch-hitting Franco was signed out of the Dominican Republic in 2017 for a hefty bonus of $3.8 million and is already making a huge impact. Assigned to rookie ball with Princeton in the Appalachian League, Franco is hitting 373 with a 436 on base percentage and a very impressive 627 slugging percentage. He has 9 doubles, 7 triples, and 10 home runs and just 209 at-bats. Franco has above average to plus tools across the board. He has a quick bat with strong wrist and has shown an advanced ability to bear the ball with hard contact. He gets surprising pop from his 5'10", 190 pound frame and has the potential to be a middle of the order hitter with above average speed. He moves well at short with good range and a strong arm and should be able to stick at the position as he advances. To top it all off, Franco has shown excellent plate discipline walking 24 times while striking out just 14 times in over 200 at bats. While he is still years away from the Mangers, Wander Franco has been tremendously impressive as one of the youngest players in professional baseball and is a must-own in all long-term keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes analysis of call-ups including White Sox right-hander Michael Kopech, Cincinnati outfielder Aristides Aquino, and other call-ups. And in the eyes have it, Baseball HQ scouting analyst Chris Blessing goes on the road to do some prospect mining in AAA and found some decent nuggets. He's watching Toronto prospects Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Dwight Smith Jr., and Anthony Alford, not Jr., as well as Atlanta outfield prospect Michael Reed. These days, and at this time of year, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in our leagues, and Baseball HQ gives you the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Texas outfielder Drew Robinson, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Let's face it, the numbers aren't pretty for 26-year-old Texas Rangers outfielder Drew Robinson. 
in 83 Major League games, 48 in 2017, and now 35 in 2018, Drew Robinson has batted a paltry 206, including a minuscule 185 batting average in 92 big league at-bats so far in 2018. Ooh, ouch! Not necessarily the type of player who will light up the waiver wire this week, or even next week. However, maybe, just maybe, it's worth taking a chance on Drew Robinson. Here's why. First of all, he's flexible. He's played up to six different positions of the minors and can probably fill in almost anywhere for Texas this season. Plus, with consistent playing time, perhaps his low batting average will improve, especially considering his small major league sample size of only 83 games. Which raises our next point. Several Texas Rangers are banged up. Adrian Beltre's hamstring continues to bother him. Delino DeShields has fractured his right middle finger. Ryan Rua is suffering from back spasms, and the list goes on. In other words, perhaps opportunity is knocking for Drew Robinson. However, most fantasy owners will quickly dismiss Drew Robinson in favor of Carlos Tochi, the former Phillies prospect who was claimed off waivers by the White Sox and then traded to the Rangers that same day, December 14, 2017, for cash. Other owners will overlook Drew Robinson in favor of former Dodgers prospect Willie Calhoun, who will likely be called up again in September. That's why Drew Robinson, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Sure, he's a long shot, and yes, he probably will be ignored. But then again, maybe he shouldn't be. Drew Robinson has not only shown flexibility in the field, which could keep his bat in the lineup, but has also demonstrated a decent power-speed combination at AAA, along with the ability to hit for average. Consider this. Drew Robinson batted 303 with a 948 OPS, including 10 home runs and 5 steals, in 53 games for AAA Round Rock in 2018. Not bad. More importantly, Drew Robinson's contact rate at AAA has improved from 84% in 2017 to 87% in 2018, a 3% improvement. Remember, Drew Robinson would only need to improve by another 3% to reach our 90% contact rate threshold for baseball's best hitters at BaseballHQ.com. So if Drew Robinson can cross that threshold, maybe it's time for you to do the same. Would you consider adding Drew Robinson, our frequent flyer for this week? For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. That's coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe, welcome back to part two. Hey, Patrick. What can Major League Baseball do about bean balls? I think the first thing you want to look at is the discipline structure. Um, there's only so much you can do within the current structure. You, the typical high end for a suspension is 10 games. Uh, Jose Urania got six. That'll probably be knocked down on uh, on. Uh, on appeal by one or so, that's the way things usually go. You can't do this on the fly. Rob Manfred couldn't just decide to, to suspend Jose Urania for 30 games. 
There's also the issue of these suspensions are unpaid, so that if you were to just start suspending guys for a month, I, I don't know how comfortable I am taking that much money out of somebody's pocket when he might something he might have been directed to do by his manager. So uh, the one thing I've looked at is splitting suspensions where you'd say it's a 20-game suspension, six of which are unpaid. So the player takes the financial cost and gets disciplined. The league says, hey, this is a serious problem we want to address without necessarily taking that much money out of a young player's pocket. I, I think that might be one way to address it. Um, I, I will say that baseball doesn't need any scenes like we had between Urania and Acuna or Zach Greinke and Carlos Quentin or any of the other ones we see you know, year in, year out. Ryan Dempster and Alex Rodriguez, some of the ones that come to mind. Player, even with you know batting helmets, you know being mandated for the last fifty years, um, we do occasionally see some horrifying things. More and more players are wearing the, the kind of the extender, the the thing that, that blocks the face. Um, but you know, I watched Jordan Hicks last night throw one hundred three, one hundred two, one hundred three. Players throw so much harder now that you really have to discourage this kind of behavior because you are putting. I, I don't know if. I'm not a lawyer, Patrick, but I will say this. If somebody threw a ball, whether I was wearing a helmet or not, 103 miles an hour at my head, I would consider that assault with a deadly weapon. And I don't think baseball wants to start. You know, I think baseball has to make a stand against that kind of behavior. So uh, I, think a strike, I think split suspensions is one way to go. You have to do this in the offseason. You have to negotiate this with the players' union. But that would be one step for baseball to say, hey, look, we're not going to take this nonsense anymore. Because my, my fear is that it's going to be like the second base rule or the catcher rule where it took a Buster Posey injury or a Ruben Tejada broken leg for the league to act. Well, if you wait for something tragic to happen at home plate, it's going to be a lot worse than a broken leg. We've talked before about the replay system, and I have to say I think it's working in that it is definitely helping get more calls right, but it almost always brings games to a grinding halt every time it's used. What could Major League Baseball do to make replay better? Yeah, I can't stop screaming about this. Baseball literally implemented the replay system in a way that was designed to make people hate replay. The simple solution has been out there. I think I wrote this in SI 10 years ago. A fifth umpire in every crew. Yay, we've created more umpire jobs. He's at the park. If you want to say he's communicating with New York and they make the decision, fine. I don't care. But he has full, he, he basically has the authority to stop the game. He has the authority to make the call, and he starts things up again. And he has a decision to choose whether to stop the call. This is important for this reason. Right now, replays, first of all, managers don't make the call. It's a guy in the back making $52,000 a year looking at the replay system. Managers aren't actually looking at the replays. Second of all, managers are making these decisions based on the leverage of the situation. It's also how you get the, did the base runner's foot, come off the bag for a split second while the tag was still on him calls that were never designed to be governed by replay. But once the manager can, can review that, you have to review it. Hey, this is my challenge. I'm going to use it here. And once the umpire sees that the runner's foot was off the bag for a fraction of a second, he's got to call them out. You would take those out if you had a neutral fifth umpire making the calls because no neutral fifth umpire is going to have that be replayed. So it also gets rid of the big hanging sign because right now, manager stops the game, the umpires all go over to the guy in the NLB.com hat, and everybody puts their little equipment on and talks. And it's just a big sign that says, replay is slowing down your evening. You could be getting home two minutes faster. All you need to do is add a fifth umpire to every crew, 
make it even a sinecure for older umpires. You put them up in the booth, they make the call, whether they communicate with New York or they, they look at the reviews, the reviews themselves, but it would be a, it would be increased. I don't know. Every time I have this conversation, I think, why do we have the system in place when there is a better system that creates jobs for umpires just sitting there, waiting to be taken? I just don't get it. We've also talked quite a bit about poor ball and strike calling over the years, and uh, both of us are pretty serious advocates of uh, technologizing that aspect of baseball umpiring. Uh, just the other day, Joe, I don't know if you saw this, but I forget who was playing, but a, a player turned around after a, a called third strike, and he actually said to the umpire something to the effect of, a call like that is why we need technology to replace you. And he got kicked out. So I think the umpires are a little bit sensitive about that. How much advancement on the uh, automated strike zone calling do you foresee in the immediate or distant future? I'm not an expert in this field, and the people who are experts, and I'll name-check Harry Tablet is here, say that the technology isn't there to make this work. Fine. Like, Harry's the expert, and I'm not. My position is this. A, an automated system will call the pitch based on where it crosses the plate. It will not call the pitch based on the count. It will not call the pitch based on what the catcher did. And right there is my entire argument for going to it. Even if it's not, even if it's less accurate than we have now, it's going to call the pitch based on where across the plate. It's not going to call the pitch based on the service time of the pitcher. It's not going to call the pitch based on where the pitch, the, the last four pitchers went. It's going to call the pitch based on where the pitch crosses the plate. That's, that's what I want. I am tired of catch, pitch framing being a thing because Pitch should be called based on where it crosses the plate, not what the catcher does with it. So I want to eliminate all of that. So if it's not as good as, it, as, as umpires are now, I'll live with that because it would be more fair to the batters. And that, that's my big thing. Right now we've got so much manipulation of the strike zone by the umpires and the catchers. Well, I should say so much uh, manipulation of the results by the catchers and the umpires. I, I want that out of the game. I want the pitch to be called based on where it crosses the plate. I've seen a few articles about why the science isn't ready to replace the uh, umpire because there are still half-inch errors and, and this kind of thing. And I think this is a case of what uh, used to be called the perfect being the enemy of the good, in that, uh, you know, it, the, the key element, and I think you hit this on the head, is consistency. Uh, when you listen to them guys talking in the booth about the umpires and say, well, that was a bad call, but he's being consistent and that's all you can ask for. And you think to yourself, well, if the machine is consistently within half an inch, that's way better than the consistency of the umpire, not even allowing for all of those other factors. Uh, what's the reputation of the batter for being able to take a close pitch? That's been proved as far as I know. I remember an article years ago that said that if you had a player like Tony Gwynn, it was very difficult to get a called strike, especially a called third strike on him, because all the umpires knew that Tony Gwynn knew the strike zone better than they did, or at least that was his rep. And there's, there's all of these sort of human things that are going into it and it if the technology exists to get close enough to eliminate a lot of that nonsense i think the game would be better also probably faster yeah well that's this is a long point to make but i wrote this a couple of years ago some of the length of game the slowness of the pace of the game now is because pitchers are constantly pitching to the edge of the zone and they're doing this because their stuff's better than they can, and they're better than they can. But they're doing this because they, they're trying to get the batter to swing an unhittable pitch or get the umpire to call an unhittable pitch a strike. The whole point of a strike zone, the entire point of the strike zone 130 years ago, 
was to get to move the game along so the pitchers just couldn't constantly throw pitches way out of the strike zone and the batter would get bored and hit the ball. The point of a strike zone is to create more balls in play. And we've had a perversion of that, particularly over these last couple of years, where the strike zone is now a tool being used to keep balls out of play. And what baseball needs right now is more balls in play. More than anything else, it needs fewer strikeouts and more balls in play. And the, the, the current system for calling balls and strikes is taking balls out of play. It's encouraging pitchers to throw pitches outside the, the strike zone and hope that their catcher can get the strike anyway. So I absolutely 1,000% believe that an automated strike zone would speed up the game. It might actually cause offense to rise, which isn't really the end of the world, but it would absolutely speed up the game. Hitters would, pitchers would have to throw more hittable pitches and we'd have fewer 2-2 two, two, and 3-2 counts. Hit batters would know that pitchers had to throw more hittable pitches. I mean, the whole dynamic would change between batters and pitchers. Out. But if you watch baseball right now, it is an endless parade of pitchers getting ahead 0-1 and then trying to get either a bad swing because the, 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 the batter's afraid the umpire's going to make a, a call, or it's trying to get the umpire to call a pitch two inches off the outside edge of strike. You are uh, maybe the vanguard guy as far as uh, bringing to people's attention the fact that the amount of singles being hit in baseball has been steadily declining. And now I'm hearing this even from the broadcast booths. Guys are talking about how few singles there are. And it sounds like if we could get that uh, element of things fixed, it might make the game not only faster because people would be a little more willing to swing at pitches that were in the zone, but also more entertaining in that there'd be more singles and more doubles and more guys running first to third and second to home or trying to score from first on a double instead of standing around with a ball and chain around their ankle waiting for the guy to hit a home run. I think that there's a lot of pluses here, and I don't see a lot of minuses. Yeah, uh, 2018 has been a really good year for things I wrote about three years ago showing up in the mainstream. Uh, the singles are, are a really big issue because it affects everything. Um, I can't say that I want to see a whole bunch of sacrifice bunts come back into the game. I think the elimination of position player sacrifice bunts is a good thing. But stolen bases in particular, the math on stolen bases doesn't work anymore because of the absence of singles. Um, the, the, the benefits of bunting, whatever they might be, are gone in the absence of singles. If you're not going to be able to get a guy from second to home, there's no reason to try to get him from first to second. Uh, the, the elimination of singles, which, like I said, is the lowest rate in baseball history, has enormous effects on gameplay. And particularly when you get to the late innings and, you know, one run matters, there's just none of that tension. You know, none of that Dave Roberts is going to go first to second tension when, you know, singles are just going to be such a, a small part of the equation when it's Craig Kimbrell against Giancarlo Stanton. So uh, I, I, this, this is a problem based on uh, MLB is talking about shifts. Shifts aren't even a tiny percentage of the problem. The problem is that pitchers are witches now. Um, more and more, Patrick, I come around to the idea that I'm probably going to eventually have to move the pitching rubber back. It's been at 60 feet, 6 inches for 115 years. Um, and in that time, you know, pitchers are, what, 6 inches taller and you know, 50 pounds heavier than they were back then? We know they throw a ton harder. I think that's, that, that gap, that 60-foot, 6-inch gap, has gotten so much smaller, particularly over the last like, 30, 40 years since we started developing pitchers solely for their velocity. I mentioned Jordan Hicks going 103, 102, 103 last night. So it, it, the, the reason that we don't have a lot of singles isn't because the shortstop is here and the second baseman is here. That cuts off some singles. But the reason we don't have a lot of singles is because the pitcher is here and the batter is here in the same place as they were in 1893.
And I find the counter-argument against that, which is tradition. Hey, the, the rubber's been there 60 feet, 6 inches from pitcher to, to batter has been standard for, for 100 years or however long it, it has been. And that seems to ignore the fact that you just brought up that a lot of the pitchers in 1940 were 5 feet 8, and now they're 6 feet 8. And uh, that means when the ball is released, it's a lot closer to the batter than it used to be, and that has changed the tradition of the game in a way that hasn't really been all that positive. Exactly. And you've got to remember, I mean, 66 wasn't, you know, handed down on stone tablets either. You know, people tell you it was a mistake. It was supposed to be 60 feet and the guy screwed up. But, I mean, it was 50, it was 45 feet, you know, 45 foot with a box. Pitchers didn't used to be able to throw overhand. There were all kinds of restrictions in the early going. So we might have to look at 60 foot. And, and i got to tell you, it took me a while to get to this point, Patrick. I think there are a lot of knock-on effects you have to talk about here. You know, if it's going to be 61-6 at the major league level, is it also going to be 61-6 at AAA, AA, single A, the colleges, high schools? How many, I mean, at what point, in the same way that 12-year-olds, when they're 13, go from playing on a, a small field to a regulation baseball field, how many baseball diamonds are going to have to kind of be moved or altered before pitchers start throwing you know, at 61-6 or 62-1 or whatever it's going to end up being? I don't think it's an easy thing. I really don't. I think it's a hard, complicated thing. Major League Baseball teams can pay to, redo their field every year, and most of them do. But it's harder if you're a college. It's you know, much harder if you're a high school. So um, there's also the issue of do you do it incrementally, you know, one inch a year for however many years. Do you do it all at once? Twelve. Um, are you risking pitcher injuries? What happens to breaking balls? You know, you're, you've been throwing your curveball a certain way at a certain distance for 20 years, and now all of a sudden they're saying, well, now you're going to be a foot further back. What does that do to breaking pitches? I don't think this is easy in any way, shape, or form. And if it were me, I would designate the Midwest League next year to say, you guys are going to pitch at 61-6, and we're going to see what happens. But you need a test bed for this, and it's got to be bigger than the Arizona Fall League. You literally have to designate a league next year or in some future season to say, we're moving the mound back in your league because we want to know what happens. Could be a tough sell, especially for the pitchers who might look at it and go, what if I get hurt? That, and that, that's a big, that's an enormous part of it. Um, somebody, I said, when this first came up, we were talking about this maybe six months ago on, online on Twitter, and uh, they said, we'll just move it back two feet. I'm like, every pitcher in the world just called their lawyer. It is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Well, speaking of pitchers, I've been talking about this with a lot of my expert guests here at Baseball HQ Radio. We've seen a lot more teams show a willingness to try new strategies with their pitching. The Rays this year with their openers or pre-levers, if you want to call them that. Various permutations of the two times through the order and you're done pitcher usage patterns. How do you think these ideas have affected the game? I think we're still figuring that out. I know there was a lot of resistance initially to what the Rays did, but the biggest thing that can happen for a new idea is for it to succeed, and the Rays have had some of the best run prevention in baseball. Now, they're 60, I think they're 65 and 61 as I talked to you today. Um, nobody cares because the American League and they're, you know, they're a thousand games out of first place, but you know, they're taking a team with a bunch of players nobody's ever heard of, and they're going to win 80, 85 games. And it's, it's worked. If you look at the third time around, they have the fewest third time around at-bats in baseball, and their numbers in third, third time around at-bats are really good because those third-time around at-bats are being taken by the bottom of the order instead of the top. So uh, I, I absolutely think that it's worked for them. Um, will we see other teams do it? No, I don't think we've seen enough experimentation in some of the bad, like the, the Marlins, the Padres, these teams that are going nowhere, the Royals, the Orioles over the next few years. These teams should be trying everything and anything. Even if it's you know, bad idea, we're going to steal 300 bases. Fine, go for it. Let's see how it works. What, is it, what happens when a team decides to 
they're going to run every time they get on base. Um, what if we eliminate starting pitchers? What if we pretend the save will never exist? I mean, there are all kinds of things bad teams could be doing that I think maybe if the Rays' success this year, maybe the lesson to take out of that isn't something specific to the program itself, but to what you can do when there are no expectations. I'd like to think that would be the long-term effect here. You know, if you're a bad team going nowhere, try everything. And in a way, that was kind of the money ball idea, right? We're not going anywhere doing it the way everybody else does. We have to innovate and try to find new ways of thinking about how we approach this. With them, it was payroll and, and uh, player management, player acquisition management. But I can see a, a smart general manager, a smart front office saying, as you said, hey, we're not going anywhere this year with what we've got. Let's try to figure out ways to maximize the utility of what we have on our roster instead of trying to maximize the roster to the kind of game plan that we arbitrarily set up ahead of time. Do you think, though, that the idea of putting out fewer relievers for longer and more frequent uh, appearances could work? And I'm thinking of, for instance, could a relief pitcher who's maybe not going to be able to succeed as a starter be prepared or trained to go 63 inning appearances in a season or 65 three inning appearances in a season? It's still only roughly twice a week or every every three times every five days kind of thing. Could there be another Mike Marshall in our future? It's funny you mention that name because actually I'm writing about him, but not writing about him, but I referenced him in today's newsletter. Um, we're speaking on a, a Thursday, the 23rd, I believe. Uh, and in the context of there being fewer 30 save seasons last year and this year than we've had in recent years, and what, what are we seeing in terms of bullpen development? I, I feel like the upper bound for relievers right now is probably 80 innings. If you look at this decade, there's just been one reliever to throw 90 innings or more in the last four seasons. That's even a technicality. It's Ryan Yarbrough with this year's Rays, who's not really a relief pitcher. He's starting all those games in the second inning. Um, and even 80-inning relievers are pretty rare. Um, there have just been 42 80-inning relief seasons this decade. So could you start training guys to do that? Yeah, and I think that that's the way. I would like to see that, but it goes against what we've learned. What we've learned is that at the individual level, relief pitchers are most effective when you start them to start the inning, you let them get their three outs, and then you go to the next guy. The reason this way of running a bullpen is spread like kudzu is because it works. And I think the only way to get away from that is, you know, I've proposed in the past, uh, 11 men, uh, maxing out the pitchers at 11 men. Because right now, most teams are carrying 12. Some days they're carrying 13. And with the improved communication and, and, and travel that we have in the modern world, they're effectively running 26 and 27 man rosters, shuttling the last couple of guys on the roster every day. So I don't think, do I think you could train a pitcher? Maybe not 63 inning outings, but you know, could you have 50 appearances and 110 innings? Maybe. But teams show absolutely no willing to do this. I'd have to dig to find the last 100 inning reliever, probably Xavier Hernandez 15 years ago, somebody like that. It just isn't done anymore, and I think you've got to convince teams that that's a better way to run the bullpen than the way they're running it now, and I think the only way that's going to happen is if you tell them you can only have 11 pitchers on the roster. Unless, an external, unless something happens externally that forces teams to start doing that, I don't think we'll see it. I mean, we talked about Josh Hader at the start of the year. Now, Hader was on pace to have a year like that, but even now, he's at 61 innings. He's only going to end up around 75 innings. Is part of that, though, Joe, because the, the bullpen structure as it is 
kind of relies on situational pitching or contextual pitching decisions. And that oftentimes means that relievers are told to stand up and start warming up. And then the situation changes and they're told to sit back down. Uh, and in other situations, they don't even get up to get into a game at all because the, the situation the manager believes is out of hand in one direction or the other. What about a situation where you said to your pitching staff, okay, you guys, you, you seven guys or eight guys, however many it is, are going to pitch every third day for, for two times through the order. That's just going to be our pattern. You're not going to warm up uselessly ever. You're just going to get out there every third day and you're going to pitch two times through the order and then you're going to sit down and, and Joe Smith next to you. Well, there actually is a Joe Smith, so maybe that's a bad example of a non-reliever. But you could take failed starters or guys who couldn't, uh, couldn't succeed as starters and get them to cut down, increase frequency, decrease innings. I think that there's – I don't know that it would work. I'd like to see somebody try it, I guess. Just this week, Ben Lindbergh at The Ringer wrote about the 1993 A's. Tony Russa, going nowhere with his first team post-A's dynasty, tried to do this. He had the likes of, I think, Bobby Witt and Ron Darling and guys like that. And he said, we're going to use this model. It's going to be three guys every third day or every fourth, whatever it was. And you're going to three innings, three innings, three innings. Something along those lines. And there was kind of an open rebellion because it was a bunch of veteran guys and the team wasn't winning. And for a week, it didn't work. Uh, I want to say the Rockies tried something under maybe Jim Leland where they were going to max their pitchers out at 75 pitches an outing, which in today's game is basically three to four innings. Uh, it didn't work. They went away from it. This is why I talk about bad teams. I don't know if this would work, Patrick, but I can't think of a reason in the world why the Orioles wouldn't do this next year or the Royals wouldn't do this next year. Give it a shot. And it works for these teams because they have no veterans to worry about. One of the reasons the Rays can get away with what they're doing this year is that they're dealing with a whole bunch of pitchers who aren't going to get paid anyway. None of these guys are even arm eligible yet. They're going to make exactly the same next year, no matter what their usage pattern is. Now, if you had three veteran starters on the roster, you'd probably have chaos, which is what you had in 1993 with the A's. It doesn't work if, if you're taking money out of guys' pockets and – this is where the, the real politic of, you know, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with guys' lives. Um, I want to say it was, I, I don't want to credit this to Zach Greinke. Zach Greinke had objections. Maybe this was an objection. I apologize, Zach, if this wasn't yours. But there was something to the eyes of the notion of if you eliminate starting pitchers, you're eliminating a path to guys getting paid. Now, I don't think the Rays are doing that. I think they're trying to win baseball games. But it is going to be difficult to make statistical cases for these guys when it does come time to try to get them paid. The stat lines are just going to be, frankly, very strange. Now, I think we're better about not paying wins or saves the way we were 20 years ago. I think the industry has matured in how it pays its players. But you're going to see some stat lines coming out of these race pitchers that you're not going to be able to take them to arbitration. Arbitration arbitrators are going to look at it and go, what? I have no idea what he's looking at. Um, but yeah, I, I think there are a lot of barriers to something like that, but I don't think there's any reason in the world why five teams next year couldn't try this. And I'd like to, as I said, I'd like to see the experimentation. Whether it's as rigid as that, though, Patrick, I think the, the, the point I think we're both kind of dancing around here is this. The era of starting pitchers and relief pitchers might be coming to an end. Remember, it was all just pitchers 130 years ago. Jim Devlin throwing you know, 99.8% of the innings the, 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 uh, for his team one year. Some of the other crazy numbers team, you know, guys put up in the in proto-baseball era. Um, relief pitchers kind of emerged as a thing in the 1920s. And then, you know, it was the guys who couldn't start. And then, you know, firemen came about. And then, you know, the, the era of the closer. 
it feels more and more, especially when you look at where starting pitcher workloads are going, are going, what was it, just 15 guys to 200 innings last year? If starting pitcher workloads are going to keep decreasing, the, the line between starters and relievers is just going to dissipate, and we're just going to have pitchers. And that, to me, is what I'm going for. And it, I think it's a problem for baseball from a marketing standpoint. I know this is a very long answer. You know, it, it's harder. Come out to the ballpark tonight. Sergio Romo's going to get five outs, and then Ryan Yarbrough's going to pitch. It's a lot different than come out to the ballpark tonight, Justin Verlander's going to pitch. Um, I think that's the thing baseball will have to deal with. But the way things are going, we're moving more and more. We're getting back to the original days where they, instead of having starting pitchers and relief pitchers, we just have pitchers. You were talking about Oakland uh, uh, a minute ago. And back in the day, uh, Tony La Russa, uh, 1976 A's had a pitcher who had uh, no starts and 135 innings almost, uh, Raleigh Fingers. And he actually did that repeatedly over his career for them and for San Diego. And I think that the point you make is accurate in that it it has to be somebody like the Royals or the Orioles who have nothing to lose. And if Zach Greinke is right in, in saying that the starting pitcher role is a path to getting paid, then from the team's point of view, not having starting pitchers is a way of saving money. And uh, the teams are always interested in that. If they can get a given level of performance and success and reduce the cost of it, then the teams have the incentive to do it. And the players, again, depending on how strong they are in their union, might not have an awful lot to say about it. Well, I, mean, you, you, I don't think you can have an awful lot to say about you know the way individual team practices. This isn't an entire industry giving itself over to this. This is one team doing it. Um, and we'll have to see what the Rays do. If the Rays do this, succeed, but then also run a payroll commensurate with, with their revenues, I don't think there'll be a lot of complaints. If they do this, succeed, and nobody ever gets paid, but we're not going to know this for five or six, we probably won't have a read on the effect of the opener on you know individual player salaries until 2025 at the earliest. It's going to take a while. So... You know, until then, I think this is a lot. We're, we're scaremongering a little bit. I think Zach Granke, in the same way that ex-closers going to the booth and talk about how hard it is to be a closer, Zach Granke is a starting pitcher who's saying, well, starting pitchers are important. Well, yeah, yeah Zach, you're a starting pitcher. You're going to say that. And, um, nothing against Zach Granke, but we all tend to think that the, 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 the thing we do is important. I think writing about baseball is important. And I can't even say that with a straight face. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, how do you see the playoffs going? Uh, I, I don't think there's, you know, for me, I'm always the guy that says no, no, no outcome will surprise me. I think it's even more so this year when you look at, you know, the AL has three great teams, and then the Indians, who, if you look at their playoff roster, are going to be on that level. I mean, again, it talks about you know Bauer, uh, Kluber, Bauer, Carrasco to start a series. They that puts them on even footing with just about anybody. So I don't think anybody coming out of that bracket would surprise me. And then the AL is kind of the other way. In the NL, it's okay. You have right now eight teams that maybe aren't as good as those four. But they're incredibly evenly matched, and uh, you know we're still trying to see who's going to survive. You know, I would have said I had Dodgers and Nationals. I think in the in the NLCS this year, that maybe meet in the first round. Looks like neither one of them might even make the playoffs now. The Dodgers are four and a half out behind the Diamondbacks. So I, I'm really looking forward to the next six weeks as a regular season guy. You know, I'm I'm a guy who grew up on the regular season and pennant races, and you know, Tigers, Blue Jays in '87, and Giants, Braves in '93. I want the next six weeks to be fantastic. And then the tournament will be fun too. But I'm really excited for the next uh, six weeks and seeing who comes out of it. And I don't think that at this point I can really point to a favorite. I think the best team in baseball is either the Red Sox or the Astros. But if you told me that the 
Red Sox got swept by the Indians. Well, they're more likely to play the Yankees. Yeah, if the Astros got swept by the Indians in the division series, it wouldn't surprise me at all. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, this is the time of the show when we have been doing boons and banes for the rest of the year, but there's probably not enough time for them to be boons or banes for the rest of the year. So let's switch it up a little bit and talk about the individual awards. I don't know if you have a vote on the MVPs and Cy Youngs, but uh, if you did, who would you pick for your American League MVP? I'm not a member of the BBWAA. Never been much of a joiner. So no, I don't have any of the votes. Um, I look at the American League right now, it's too close to call. I know it's cop-out, but uh, if you forced me to vote today, I'd probably go Betts, Ramirez, Trout. But in the next six weeks, I mean, they're basically separated by nothing in B-War. Um, and if you, you know, kind of take back defense out a little bit because defensive ratings are a little less reliable, the stack has their, uh, you know, I think Ramirez, I think, is having the best offensive year of the three. So uh, I, I really don't think it's too close. I'd vote for Betts today, but it's really, really close. It's going to be close enough, and I rarely do this, Patrick, where I think the team performance is actually going to have to... I think Betts and Ramirez, particularly Betts, they're going to get bumps over Trout just for being having played more relevant baseball games. If we're in the margin of, within the margin of error of something like War or WRC Plus or all the tools we use, I do think when you get down the list of tiebreakers, it is fair to consider that. I don't like considering that generally, but if you do have three guys separated by nothing, that's, that would be one of the things I'd separate them with. So Betts and Ramirez may be over Trout. Um, how about the National League? National League MVP, for me, it's Max Scherzer. Um, he's either him or DeGrom, and statistically, yeah. I think Scherzer's having, even having a better year than DeGrom. He's got a few more innings, which matters at this level. Massive strikeout totals. Um, right now, there's no National League position player anywhere close to Scherzer and DeGrom. Um, I think you're going to see a weird year in the National League. It's going to look like 95, where like four or five different guys are going to get first-place votes. You might see the guy win it, not actually get the most first place, place votes. Um, you know, some narrative arguments for Freddie Freeman, Javier Baez, maybe Matt Carpenter now. Uh, but it's Max Scherzer is far and away the most valuable player in the National Over to the pitcher's mound, how about uh, the American League Cy Young winner? Uh, it's Chris Sale, although if he continues to spend time on the deal with a shoulder injury, I guess Corey Kluber could take it away from him again. But uh, you know, Bauer's on the deal now as well, so I, I think it's going to be Sale. I mean, Sale would be my vote. Um, it's not a lock, and there's still a chance that uh, you know, somebody could take it away from him, but Sale might pick right now. And the National League, you give the MVP to uh, Max Scherzer. Does that mean he has to get the Cy Young? Uh, I, I, this, this is a weird thing. Scherzer's having a really good hitting year. So his gap just on pitching over Jacob deGrom is actually less than it is if you look at his overall performance. And I don't consider pitcher batting when I think about the Cy Young Award. So what I would say is Scherzer's the most valuable player in the league, but his gap over deGrom for the Cy Young Award is less. And It would take a really strange confluence of events for Scherzer to be my MVP pick and deGrom to be my Cy Young Award pick but it's actually possible because Scherzer's is having such a good year at the plate. That's amazing. And uh, finally, a great year for rookies, uh, more in the National League, but uh, who's your American League Rookie of the Year? It's a tough call right now. I, I thought it was going to be Glaber Torres for the longest time, but he's had a tough uh, a tough month, you know, get Diaz coming up the DL. Probably Miguel Andahar. Um, and then, you know, Shoei Otani is becoming a, a full-time DH has hit very well. And just on value, he's probably the, the guy. So I think right now it's between Otani and Andahar. And it's going to depend on how Ivan uh, finishes the season. Throw a mention to Shane Bieber, maybe another one to uh, yeah, Shane Bieber would be the only other guy. If he finishes really strong, he could take it away. But 
Right now, I'd probably go Otani and Ohar. Interesting that the conventional wisdom coming into the season was that Otani was going to be a Cy Young level, possible Cy Young level pitcher, but probably wouldn't be able to hit. And as circumstances have uh, turned things around, he's actually a really good hitter and he's not pitching at all. So that's a great pick. Uh, And finally, in the National League, we have Acuna, we have Juan Soto. Do we have anybody else? You know, Harrison Bader actually leads National League rookies in F4, which again uses ultimate zone rating, which I'm not sure is the best measure of defense in a an era where we have this much shifting. Um, I it's between Acuna and Soto for me, and it's interesting because Soto it seems to take a big lead, but now Acuna's on fire, so I, it's very close between them. Um, I would vote Soto today, but it's not. I wouldn't feel terribly confident about it, and I think this will be decided over the last six weeks. And I mean, just the fact that we get to watch you know this incredible 20 year old and how he's not the best young star in his own division is hilarious. And, of course, there's an interesting debate as well. Uh, who's going to be the better player over the length of a career, Soto or Acuna? Just in a minute, tell me who you think is going to have the longer, more productive career. Um, I would lean towards Acuna, the broader skill set with a little more speed, probably a true center fielder if Ender and already ever gets traded. Uh, I think that's going to be a significant uh, value difference between them. Uh, I don't want to compare either player to Trout and Harper, but there is a Trout-Harper thing going on here where Trout, where you've got the up-the-middle player with a broader skill set versus Harper, whose raw power uh, you know, between him and Trout was just amazing, and I think Soto's got that. So Soto's a year younger, and that makes a big difference. If you look at 19-year-olds who've been good major league players, and he's got a 50% chance of going to the Hall of Fame already. Uh, and that's just an amazing thing to say. But I'm going to lean Acuna probably 55-45. I'm going to echo that. Uh, I think that's accurate. I'll say this. I think Acuna is going to be the better all-around player. I think Soto is probably going to be the better hitter. That sounds right. Joe Sheehan, uh, thanks so much. Uh, Tell our listeners where they can follow Joe Sheehan. Uh, I write for Sports Illustrated. I write for Baseball America. It's a back-page column once a month, every other issue. I write the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, which you can get information on at Facebook.com, Sheehan Newsletter. You can also see excerpts and uh, stuff in the archives at joshianbaseball.blogspot.com. I know that's a cool URL to have in 2018. You can follow everything I do at joe underscore Sheehan on Twitter. All right, Joe, thanks very much for helping us out. Uh, as usual, a very fascinating conversation, uh, limited only by time and certainly not by interest. Thanks so much for being on the show, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Patrick, and look forward to seeing you in November. Joe Sheehan writes for the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes, that's next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, let me very quickly suggest three reasons why you should think about attending First Pitch Arizona if you haven't already signed up. The first is you get to hang around with a bunch of guys like us, people who are very serious about fantasy baseball and very intensely interested to learn about ways to play the game better. Second reason, you get to hear a lot of expert analysts, people from the industry, people from Major League Baseball, talking about baseball, talking about fantasy baseball, so there's a great learning opportunity. And third, it's a lot of fun. Check it out at BaseballHQ.com, the homepage. Over on the right-hand side, underneath the Baseball HQ radio logo, there's a bright orange and yellow First Pitch Arizona logo. Click on that, you'll get all the information you need. I hope I can see you there. It's a lot of fun. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
Time now for our regular weekly Talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. Well, you know, uh, over the last couple of weeks in your Z-Files columns and my Master Notes columns and just our conversations here at Baseball HQ Radio on the podcast, we've been talking an awful lot about moving in the decimals, and uh, you have a really interesting column in Rotowire in the Z-Files this week uh, looking at the pitching decimals, and I know we've covered this ground a bit, but this is really specific, and I think it's really worth talking about how you can move in the pitching decimals. Uh, you focused on ERA, and your hypothesis began with a .05 drop in total ERA for the season. And when I saw that, my first question was, how much benefit can I expect from a .05 drop in ERA? Suppose I'm at four, I get down to 395. Am I really going to pick up points doing that? Yeah, well, one of the, the point, it was somewhat arbitrary and, and somewhat practical, the .05. Um, I did some of the, the typical SGP uh, standings numbers for ERA, and they're usually around .05. And then I looked at some standings, and you know th- there were some definitely some places where 0.05 made sense. So, from both a practical and a theoretical standpoint, uh, I thought I thought that was just a good baseline to use. Plus, it makes some math a little easier when trying to explain things. But it, like I said, so it's a combination of realistic and, and practical. And as I you know, alluded to, um, what I did was I looked at some 15-team mixed leagues. And even though, you know, the specific to 15-team mixed, the same idea holds in other leagues as well. I did look at some 12-team mixed and NAL and only. The same idea holds, but I just happen to have more data from the 15-team mix between Tout Wars and Labor and the NFPC National Fantasy Baseball Championships. So to add more sample size, more teams to look at, uh, we'll focus on that. But the idea holds true. It transcends all the different leagues. So I think I looked at... Um, there were there were 75 uh, teams. I guess there were five five leagues, 75 teams, and uh, I think you did the math for me. I highlighted them, but there were 42 gaps narrower than the 0.05 target that we're talking about here. So uh, you know that's that's uh, there were a lot of cases where um, you could gain a, gain a single point if not more, and in several other cases. There were times where the gaps were 0.02 or less, and there also were several instances where there were multiple points to be gained by a 0.05 change. So I want to be clear, when we say 0.05, we're going from 4 to 3.95, not like 4 to 3.5, so I am trying to make sure I say 0.05. So that doesn't, you know, 3.9 to 3.85 might not seem like much, but there are points to be gained. How much of an ERA improvement in the last quarter season does an individual team need to improve its overall ERA by 0.05? You know, we can't say that if you just improve your last quarter by 0.05, you're going to get the job done. You're trying to improve your entire season, so I'm assuming that you're going to need a, a bigger improvement in quarter ERA to make the big improvement in the in the last quarter in the total ERA. Yeah, I, we happen to I happen to write the piece at the quarter poll. The, the true quarter pole, not one way through this quarter way through the season, uh, the, the true quarter pole, and that's you know, so why I said it kind of facilitates the math. Um, if you if it's 0.05, so in order to in, in, in enact that the 0.05 improvement, you need to be 0.2 points better, and it, it's not it's not scaled to wherever you're at. Wherever you're at, if you're at 3.8, 
you need a 3.6 ERA the rest of the season to get to a 3.75. And this assumes that the innings are the same, which they might not be. So, you know, we, we that has to be taken into consideration. It does make the assumption that the innings over each quarter have been uh, the same. But they're probably going to be pretty yeah. close. Maybe, maybe you pick up some more innings because you're streaming. Maybe you back off on the innings because you're filling in with some relievers. But you know we can't we, we have to sort of we have to kind of average it out. So on the average, point uh, two. Now we're a little we're a week and a half further along into the season, so it needs to be a little bit better if if folks are doing the math at this point. But even even having said that, the, the it's still not too late. It's points can still be made up in the ratios. Well, I was going to ask, uh, you say a 20-point improvement in your rest of your ERA gets you that .05 improvement overall, but a 20-point improvement for the rest of the season, is that even possible? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, we, we, we've talked about this a lot, and I know you've written about it a lot. So what I tried to do in this particular study was, I mean, I, I say these things, and you say these things, and I wanted to actually show show it, and, and so I wanted to get more practical that's why I use standings in the .05 in the first part. But what I wanted to do was was deter, you know, just actually show that this .2, or maybe at this point, even .25 improvement, isn't just math. It's it's practical. It can be done. So what I did was I took these same. Uh, no, actually, what I did was I, I I took the um, the two Tout Wars teams because our host on Roto has a toy box. They, they call it the toy box. And it's kind of fun to play around with. And what it does is it lets you generate standings from any time frame you want of the season. So I took the 15-team mix and the 15-team draft, and I went back and calculated the ERA and the WHIP. Well, I, did, I, I showed ERA. I did WHIP just because it parallels. But I did the ERA of the 15 teams in each of these leagues for each quarter to that point, the first, second, and third quarter. And I just l- looked at them, uh, not so much in a vacuum, but put the, you know, put the three against their average. And in 13 of 15 cases in each league, there was a point two difference from the average, better. There was a point two better than the average. And it may not be by variance, because maybe a trade was made, or maybe uh, free agent pickups were made and re- replaced a bad pitcher with a reserve. But the point is, it doesn't matter how that difference came about, because you, you know, whatever whatever reason it came about, you can do the same thing in the last quarter. Maybe you can't make as many trades, but a lot of teams still have deadlines through the 31st. But the point being, in 13 of the 15 teams in each league, there was already uh, an, an ERA lower than the average. So can it happen? Yeah, it's already happened 26 of 30 times. So if you're, you know, and I'm sure in many of these cases it was just variance. It was just uh, catching Sonny Gray at the wrong time and it inflates your, your, uh, your, your, your team ARA or catching, um, you know, having Derek Rodriguez come in in an NL or mixed league and really surprising in the, in the second and third quarters and, and lowering your ARA. So it can happen. It, it could happen in a lot of cases without even without you even trying. So I think that so it, to me anyway, looking at that data, the answer is yeah. It can. It, it's not just numbers. It's possible to 
have a 3.8 ERA from a ratio from a staff that's currently at 4.0, or even a four from a staff that's 4.2. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. That makes me curious, Todd. Were there also instances where the where the improvement was even greater? Were were there instances where an individual team might have had a a, a four ERA for the season and a three seventy five for the quarter or a three sixty? Oh yeah, they uh there were. I didn't I didn't really focus on these too much, but there were there were there were definitely times where the where the delta was kind of huge, and it, in those instances, you got to figure. There was, I don't want to say fluky. Well, it may have been fluky, but um, in this, but the the point being, what's to say that that doesn't happen again? So, I mean, we we both believe you should manage this and attempt to manage it, but the the point being, it might you might not even have to, or or it, it, you may be able to embellish the management if just if Lady Luck is shining upon you and just helps you out and gets you whoever the Derek Rodriguez of the final quarter might be, um, you, you, may bene- you may benefit even more. You may get a couple of points just by, by variance, and due to your diligence, you may get even a couple more points. Well, let's assume you don't want to rely entirely on Lady Luck to get the job done and create this CRA improvement. Uh, what can the owner do to manage the situation more actively? Yeah, well, first... You know, as we talk about in any of these things. And, you know, this holds true in homers and it holds true in any category. It matters where you are. And each, you know, all we can do when we do our little studies, use either our own leagues or average standings, something like that. But each league is unique in the way the distribution of stats lay out. So you, you you have to go to your standings and you have to see where you are. And knock on wood, well... Hopefully you're at the top of the cluster and you don't have to worry about this. But if you're not, you need to, you know, you hope you're at the bottom of a tightly grouped cluster. So a lot of this is just talking about Lady Luck shining on you with a good pitcher. A lot of it might just happen to be where you are within the category. And if you happen to be in a ratio category where you're at the bottom of a tightly of, of, a, of a cluster, there's a couple things you can do. And just like you're trying to gain in homers and not losing steals or or gain, you know, something to that effect. Uh, it's always a balance between your ratios and your wins and your strikeouts. So it, it's difficult to, uh, uh, you know, figure out, not that it's difficult, but you just have to make sure you, you keep in mind that if I, you know, one of the things you can do is switch to reliever, you know, to specifically answer the question. You can switch to a top reliever. How much is that going to cost me in strikeouts and cost me in wins? It's a little bit about that, a little bit of that math and, in part because there's so many good high strikeout relievers, you're not going to lose as many points in strikeouts as you might think. Um, and who you may even gain points in wins because the you know the idea is you're dropping your worst pitcher, and even in a two-start week, they're probably not going to be in line for a win. However, if you replace them with a you know, a good reliever, you can't guarantee a win, but you might even say the probability of your reliever is a better chance of getting a win than your worst starting pitcher, even in a two-start week. So if you want to call that a wash, now you're just comparing your ratios to your strikeouts, and you're probably not losing as many strikeouts as you think, because one of the reasons this pitcher's not very good is because they're not striking batters out. So, 
you know, you may lose 10 or 15 strikeouts, which, again, depending on where you are in the standings, might not mean a thing. It may not even change then it matters. It probably means a point or two, but the idea is if you're in the right spots of the standings, you gain more than you lose. It's a net positive. So, you know, one of the, as we said, taking out a, uh, you know, you don't even have to put in a closer. You put in a good middle reliever, you can gain more points than you can lose. And I, I did, you know, using this point two as the sort of target, I showed how taking a a bad starter and putting in a good reliever all by itself gets you that difference of point two. So how does the dominant non-closer, I presume we're not talking about closers, they're not available, but if you add an Andrew Miller or somebody like that, I guess he's probably not available either. But there are lots of guys like that in the free agent pool in 15-team mix with uh, really good skill uh, sets and because they're perceived as not being that helpful, they tend to be available. How much can this uh, kind of dominant reliever improve the ratios? Yeah, to get a little more practical, you kind of alluded to it. I kind of, at the time, you know, these things change, especially relievers because they're so volatile. But at the time, there were uh, over 30, almost 40 relievers that fit the mode of having an ERA uh, 3.0 or lower. Now, uh, some of these will be rostered, but not all of them. But, you know, so, I mean, there's 15 teams in the league. I know no one has, not, not, not every, you know, there's not two or three per team. So there's plenty of them out there. So here, here it does matter where you start from as far as your ERA goes because we're adding, the innings will differ. You're adding on a different number of innings. But a, a very good non-closer can improve. It might not be the whole .05 you're looking for, but you can get in the .02 to .03 range. And if the, if the, if the delta between the two is huge, it could be up to .04 and maybe even .05. Because if you hit upon one of the relievers that that ends up with a 2.1 ERA or something like that, and you're replacing a 4.4, maybe 4.5 or .46 ERA starter, you can the, the different you can make up the entire difference that we're talking about this .05 by just one switch. Again, got to be careful about your strikeouts. Yeah, you said in the article that uh, if you take a 460 starter out and put a 280 ERA reliever in, you're going to pick up that four to five points that you're looking for to to make the the move in the category. That doesn't seem at all impossible. It actually seems pretty easy to do. I, in our league, in the, in an American League only league that I play in, there are starting pitchers on almost every team's roster with ERAs closer to five than they are to four. And I got news for you. In the AL, it's going to be easier because I did this with 15-team mixed. And therefore, just by natural, more starting pitchers or whatever, the innings is going to be higher. So if you reduce the number of the innings in the denominator and do the same exact replacement, it's actually probably going to be a little bit high, a little more of an improvement, which is interesting. Um, and I have to sort of, when I write, we have to sort of make it to our target audience. And it just, it turns out that... Uh, you know, maybe people that listen to this podcast play a higher percentage of AL and AL and NL only leagues than uh, than than the general population. But that's the uh, you know if I you know you, whenever I do a follow up, you never want to do the same thing. So maybe you know I make my note and I say next time I do this, you know, refer to this piece because it's already done. But add AL and NL. You know, do the math for the AL and the NL, and you know, to sort of a, as a uh, you know, the next the next time through, you know, we you know we both do it. You know, this this we want to present topics because they're important, 
but you don't want to just regurgitate your own stuff, so you need to figure out fresh ways to present it. So maybe that's an interesting way to do it next time is uh, do the math with AL and NL only. I'll bet I find that it's even a greater effect. I'll bet it is too, and uh, I do do the math on each individual basis. Uh, you have to be logical about it. You have to try to figure it out, and the math changes from yeah. league to league. So don't just assume that because you know Todd and Patrick say, do this, and you'll get a .05 gain, and you'll pick up three points. Yeah, you may not. You know, it just depends on how many innings does the guy in front of you have that you're chasing, how many earned runs has he given up, how much is that right. going to change, how many who's he got left on his roster, those kind of things. Uh, finally, Todd, you mentioned that uh, the natural variance can help the team that's doing the chasing through uh, just the the way things are. Doesn't this also mean that the owner can benefit from the variance if it causes a worsening for the guy you're chasing? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, that that that's part of my original, you know, argument as to why you can still gain points and ratios is, as opposed to counting stats, you you could have you can't say the same thing with hitters because if you have no hitters going on a particular night, that's probably a bad thing. But if you have no pitchers going on a particular night, that just means one of your starters isn't going, your levers weren't called in. So on a day to day basis, you can gain a point or points in those categories by having nobody work because the people close to you in the standings a little bit above you had a bad start and they fall down below you so you can you know you can gain points it just helps it, it just helps gain more points if, if uh, the person above you for whatever reason is is feels they're set and wins and feels they're set well maybe they're not set and wins they feel they're you know, they feel they can gain more points in wins and Ks, and maybe they don't care as much about ratios. They say to themselves, well, I can only lose one point. Well, maybe that one point's to you, and you gain that point. So that's it, it always helps. And, and the other thing, too, we should, should mention that, I mean, it, it, it goes hand in hand. Uh, when I did the study with, I found, uh, you know, a team in every group that was below the average ERA. The, uh, the flip side is there's going to be a team above it, too. So just by variance... You, your efforts, your hard work to enact these drops and ratios could just be balanced by bad luck. You know, you, you just like one or two bad starts and, you know, not your fault, but that's just the nature. That's the nature of the beast. So, you know, keep that in mind, too, is, you know, is, you may have done what, you know, and maybe in the end of the day, it's a it's a it's a wash. You gained two points of your hard work. You lost two points just because of a starter didn't come through for you, and it ends up being a wash. But keep that in mind too. It's it's not it's not an absolute. Uh, Variants can work against you as well. Right, but if you didn't do the hard work, you would have lost the whatever you lost through the oh, variance sure. and not gained yeah. any of it back by doing the work, and that you end up losing points because right. of variance. You cannot by doing the work, you're going to benefit one way or the other. If you pick up two points, right. you pick up two points. Absolutely. And one other thing that uh, I know you mentioned, and we've talked about this in the past too, is at this time of year, if you're chasing somebody who's kind of an also-ran, has lost interest in the league, he's got other leagues to worry about, he's got football to worry about, his wife's uh, yelling at him because he spends too much time looking at fantasy baseball, (laughs) whatever the case might be, then uh, there's a situation where you might be able to pass a guy just because he's not participating anymore. And uh, something else you just said that, that struck me, is a guy looking at trying to make a move in wins or strikeouts, looks at where he is in ERA, doesn't do any of the arithmetic and says, ah, they can't catch me, and doesn't worry about it when, in fact, they probably should worry about it if he's got a guy like you on his tail. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I like to do, and this sort of bridges over into some of the other work I do with the fab reports, 
is I like to look at what other teams are doing as far as picking up players in, in fab and off of waivers because that's, well, it's a huge tell as to how they're managing their team. If they're picking up whatever starter has two starts that week, even if they're, you know, potentially poor matchups, you know that they're just chasing wins and strikeouts. And when you're doing the own, your own category math, you can say, well, they may help me. Or you may notice the opposite. You may notice that they're that they're that they're dumping their back end starters and picking up some of these reliever types. And now you have to notice that and say, okay, I thought I may be able to catch this guy in ERA, this gal in ERA, but it looks like they're in protect mode. So instead of getting three points, I may only be able to get two. So that's another, you know, it's just an, it's another. If you're going to go through all this effort, the next step is seeing what you're up against. And, and seeing what these other uh, squads might be doing to either benefit you or help you, you know, without them necessarily purposely doing it, but just why they're managing their own teams, how it's going to, you know, I- I- affect yours as well. And finally, Todd, uh, what's the status of the Tout Wars Daily Tournament? Is it underway? How's it going there? It is underway. We had our our initial day where we had what we called the Sweet 16 Hopefully the NCAA hasn't, uh, well, they probably have uh, copyrighted it, so hopefully I won't get in trouble when I write about it. But, yeah, so we started the Sweet 16, and um, I, uh, you know, humble brag, had three of the three of the 16 entries. We're down to the Elite Eight, and I, um, humble brag two, still have got two entries going. So myself and Rick Wolf both have two. Um, unfortunately, HQ fans, uh, Ray Murphy, is not one of the final eight, so uh, we, we, won't, we won't be able to be reading his, uh, you know, GM column or whatever, how he's going to be uh, defending his his tout daily, put up a good fight, raise a very good player. But, yeah, we're down to eight. We're going to have it Friday night, the second night of the contest, and um, we will then, by the time we speak next week, it will be over because the finals are going to be on next Tuesday. But I snuck in. I think... Um, who leads? Uh, I'm not even. I don't remember, even recall at this point. Ah, Clay Link. Clay Link from uh, RotoWire has got the top team so far because we're using cumulative scores. I've got the second, so uh, I also have the seventh. So uh, we'll have to. We'll go from there. But it was a fun. It was an interesting, an interesting slate on Tuesday, and uh, a lot of different options and possibilities with with weather involved. So it made for a nice contest. And, of course, you can follow along if you're interested at ToteWars.com. Todd, thanks very much for helping us out. Yep. Talk to you again in a week. Maybe you'll be a champion. You know what? Maybe. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk about planning and hoping. After I left the newspaper business, I worked for a while in executive communications for a Fortune 100 company. Supporting executives sometimes meant sitting in with them during their strategic meetings with their senior managers. In one such meeting, my executive asked the senior manager responsible for a retail expansion how the project was proceeding. We're solidly on track with about 85% of the scheduled store openings, the manager said, and we hope to have the rest done without unreasonable delays. My executive fixed his manager with a baleful dead-eye stare that made me feel uncomfortable even though it wasn't aimed at me. I imagine it didn't make the manager feel all warm and fuzzy either. Then my executive said, hope is not a plan. But in fantasy baseball, I think hope has to be part of the plan because so much of what goes on is out of our control. We have to hope our players don't get hurt or don't underperform. At the same time, we hope that our opponents run into problems they find difficult to solve. 
With all that in mind, I went through my Tout American League team position in my league and in the categories to see how much I can help by planning and how much I have to rely on hoping. Now, I know that no amount of hoping or planning is going to move me in home runs, RBI, and runs scored, where I'm in last place by 29, 105, and 91, respectively. I think I could pick up the entire offense of the 1976 Big Red Machine, have all of them perform at career peaks, and I probably wouldn't gain ground. So I'm going to start my process with on-base percentage. Here's where I stood after Tuesday's games. I had a .3093 on-base percentage good for last place in a single point. But I was on the verge of picking up a point from the guy in front of me who has a 3099. It's only six ten thousandths. And I have a small plan to help myself. I'm going to drop Jeffrey Marte of the Angels and activate reservist Aledmus Diaz. Marte has a 259 on-base percentage this season, and while he has soared, in a manner of speaking, to 272 over the last 10 games, this will be a case of addition by subtraction. Also, as we'll soon see, my other category for gains is stolen bases. Marte is zero help in that department, and Diaz, while not much help with stolen bases, he has a handful, has an on-base percentage over 300. So for this one, I'm going to say 25% plan, 75% hope. Now, I mentioned stolen bases, and here was that situation through Tuesday. I'm at six points with 72 stolen bases, but the three in front of me are 74, 74, and 75, and the guy after that is at 84. This is all part of a plan I built back before the All-Star break. I had a decent stolen base foundation from Rajai Davis, Yuan Moncada, and Jacoby Jones. I had Jorge Polanco coming back. And since I was dealing from that weakness in power, I felt free to chase bags by offering every low stolen base power hitter I had. I traded Justin Smoke, Adam Jones, and Avisail Garcia, and I got back Malik Smith, who has provided 12 stolen bases and a great 434 on base, D. Gordon, who has provided 9 stolen bases, which is actually disappointing, and a killer 278 on base percentage as he has completely stopped walking, and I got Brett Gardner. He's 2 stolen bases so far and just a 305 on on base, but the on base should improve. Polanco has four stolen bases since his return, and I had the fab hammer at the deadline, which got me Jonathan VR and his three stolen bases so far, although he's also rocking an on base percentage under 300. With all those added wheels, I don't see how I can miss picking up those easy three points in the stolen base category, barring injury, of course. In fact, both the Baseball HQ and Davenport projections at onroto.com show me winning the category which would mean a gain of six points. I'm going to call this one 85% plan, 15% hope. All that said, however, I have higher aspirations to gain points in the pitching categories, but these are based a lot more on hope than on planning. First, let's look at wins. I'm third from the bottom with 50 wins through Tuesday. The guys in front of me, 53, 57, 58, 58, and 60. I hate wins, as you probably know, and this season hasn't disposed me any more favorably towards them. My four starters are Garrett Cole, Masahiro Tanaka, Mike Clevenger, and Marco Estrada. They've combined this year to throw 30 PQS dominant starts, that is, PQS scores of four or five. The overall American League percentage of wins in PQS dominant starts this season is around 60%, so by rights I should have 18 wins in my PQS dominant starts. Instead, those four pitchers have won just 43% of their PQS doms. That's 13 wins. I'm five short of where I should have been, and I feel like I'm owed five wins. 
I also have to hope that some of the guys I'm chasing start running into a little offsetting misfortune. Lore Michaels starters have four more PQS Dom starts than mine, and 11 more wins in those starts. His starters are converting their PQS Doms into wins at a 76% clip, almost 20% better than mine. Here is an example of hope, or perhaps even faith. I have to hope, even believe, that things will even out and my starters will get some wins in at least 60% of their PQS doms the rest of the season. If there's any justice, maybe 70%. And if there's even more justice, lore starters should get 40% conversion the rest of the way. It would also help if Toronto traded Marco Estrada to Oakland or some other good team with a gigantic field to contain all of his fly balls. It's the home runs that are killing him. In this case, I'm going to say I've got 10% in my plan, 90% in hope. In saves, I had a very aggressively planned effort. I had eight points in the category at the break, and I've already gained one. As of Tuesday, I had 48 saves good for nine points, a one-save lead on Lore Michaels. Some bad mojo did affect Vlad Sedler, the guy in front of me with 54. He lost closers Joaquin Soria and Brad Brock to deadline trades, and now he has Aroldis Chapman, his last closer, on the DL with left knee tendonitis. I lost Fernando Rodney to trade, but I had started picking up setup guys way back around the break, seeing the potential to get saves when the ALs also rans started dealing away their closers. I actually wrote about this in a previous Master Notes, but at one point after the break, I had five closers on my roster, although it wasn't long before I was back down to two, Ken Giles and Michael Givens. But I also kept Jace Fry and Taylor Rogers, both of whom have logged saves for me this week, and might chip in a few more down the stretch, especially since the White Sox helped out by shipping Luis Avalan to set up in Philadelphia. I'm pretty confident of at least one more point in this category, and maybe two, although Seth Trackman, who am I chasing, has Edwin Diaz on a record-setting pace, and Calvin Herrera looking like he'll be back closing games in Washington with Sean Doolittle out unless the Nationals fire sale Herrera himself before August 31st. I'm going to call this one 95% planning, 5% hoping. In ERA, I wrote a while back about the possibilities in the pitching decimals. In that particular category, I have 8 points with a 393. Jason Collette's in front of me at 379, a 14-point difference. I won't bore you with all the arithmetic, as I clearly have lots of other stuff to bore you with. Suffice to say that I could steal a point here if Jason throws a 420 the rest of the way, while I can sling up a 370 or so. That kind of thinking is clearly more hoping than planning. I had thought about dropping Marco Estrada to pick up yet another Lima reliever, but I'm pretty sure the loss in wins and Ks would offset any gains I might get in the decimals. And just my luck, within seconds of me waving him, Toronto would trade him to Oakland and he'd have a 290-105 with 8 wins. So I'm calling this one 10% planning, 90% hoping. In the other decimal, I don't see much chance of gaining in whip. I have 9 points as of Tuesday, with a 12.47. Laura Michaels is in front of me at 12.19. There's not a lot I can do about that big gap beyond expecting some of my relievers to pick up the pace a little, so I'm going to have to rely on Laura's staff to suddenly balloon from their 120-ish whip to 130-ish. And since he has David Price, the reborn Kevin Gaussman, and Blake Snell, not to mention Craig Kimbrell, I don't see that happening. I think I'm going to be stuck at 9 and I have a little bit of a threat from behind from Mike Podhorzer, who's at 12.53, just six points back. I'm going to call this one planning zero, hoping zero. Finally, strikeouts. 
I'm taking some planning credit for my position. I'm currently at 964 strikeouts, tied with Larry Schechter for 9.5 points. My planning began during my horrendous draft when I realized I was going to end up with 245 unspent dollars. I targeted the strikeout guys who were available, and while Estrada has been a disappointment in that regard, and others, Garrett Cole, Mike Clevenger, and Masahiro Tanaka have a combined DOM of 10.3 strikeouts per nine. I think I can get that half point from Larry Schechter, but it's going to be pretty much a coin flip. We both have four starters, and while I have the better ace in Cole, he has Carlos Carrasco, whose dom is 10.1, matching Clevenger. My hope is that Cole should be enough to swing it, you should forgive the expression. I'll also be looking over my shoulder at Rob Lebowitz, who's seven strikeouts behind me, but I think my starting pitchers are just better than his. He has Barrios, Bundy, Kashner, and Baruki. Wolf and Colton, the overall leaders, have five starters, but two of them are James Shields and Marco Gonzalez. They're both under 8.0 Dom, and two more, Kyle Gibson and Matt Boyd, are under 8.5. Of course, the Dom rate doesn't matter as much as the actual innings pitched, but I can see a lot of these guys not getting that either. These coming nine days are going to be huge for my team in both strikeouts and wins. I have eight starts coming, four of them against really weak opponents, Kansas City, Miami, Detroit, and the White Sox. I have one also against Minnesota, who haven't been swinging the bat well. Cole gets a home-and-home with the Angels, I hope without Mike Trout. And Estrada, that's the one I'm worried about, a home start against Philadelphia. I'm going to call this one 50% planning, 50% hoping. And finally, the overall. Where does all of this end up? Well, about a month ago, on July 22nd, I was last in my league. I had 37.5 points. Now I'm out of the cellar. I've gained 11 points to 48.5. Some of this planning, some of it has been hoping. I think I have reasonable shots at a total of adding 6.5 more points, as I've discussed earlier, with a ceiling of adding about 12.5. If I can get 11.5, I'll reach 60 points and avoid the 2019 fab penalty that our league imposes. Hope springs eternal, even if it's no substitute for planning. But I think you'll agree, we all need a little or a lot of both. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 32 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday full edition. It was Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Baseball America. You heard all about that. Well, Joe is one of the finest baseball writers out there. I encourage you to read his newsletter. It's a terrific resource. And, of course, Joe is always a great guest on this podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. I'd love to have you. You'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. 
More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it now, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with Jason Collette on another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.